Blog Talk Radio. Richard C. Hoagland, and welcome once again to another episode. Now, tonight is kind of unusual in that we have hit two really interesting benchmarks on the same night, and maybe at the end of the evening you might look back and say we might have even hit three. But first, if you go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our URL, the other side of midnight.com, that's our homepage, click on that, that will take you to the uh, home URL of the other side of midnight, uh, click on tonight's banner, which is very evocative. That photograph is an actual photograph taken of the steel monolith in the Utah Canyon uh, and made public about the uh, 18th of November. Um, the banner says tonight, America on Earth, with my guest, Scott Walter. Click on that. That takes you directly to Scott's guest page. And right underneath it, you'll see some fast links to various items. What you want to do is click on the items that say Richard. That takes you to my items and radio with pictures. Item number one, this is a date which is going to go down in history because this is a date that the um, uh, Food and Drug Administration formally uh, sanctioned, certified, approved of the first uh, COVID-19 virus. Now, vaccines are extraordinarily controversial. I know because I lived with Robin for over 20 years. But this is a vaccine that is about as like the old vaccines as the Enterprise Starship uh, resembles the space shuttle that NASA named after the Starship. There is no comparison. And what we're going to do in the next few weeks, couple weeks or so, is we're going to get into the vaccine thing and why not all vaccines are created equal. And while real science is critical as part of our guide of how to figure this out, it's incredibly controversial. There are all kinds of bizarre conspiracy theories on every you know quarter way around the deck. Uh, it's very hard, if you're not a scientist, to know how to figure this out. What we're going to do is get the right guest or guests and we're going to figure this out. Item number two, and again, this goes back to my grandmother and her, um, you know, saying, time is what God invented to keep everything from happening at once. Well, everything is happening at once, which of course means I've said several times now that maybe God is taking a vacation. Item number two in Radio Victories tonight, the Supreme Court rejected the Texas lawsuit in amalgam with 17 other states in the union, challenging the 2020 election results and basically asking that the court throw out the ballots of four major states of the union. 
I mean, this is bizarre. This is really bizarre. God's way of keeping everything from happening at once is time, and time is breaking down. Okay, um, item number three. As you may or may not have noticed over the last several weeks, we have done a series of uh, shows devoted to this monolith mania, which has been, uh, um, you know, taking over the country and the world. And we're going to talk to my guest tonight about this, because as you know, if you follow the program for the last several weeks, there is a pattern. There is a mathematical message in the appearance of the monoliths. The message is right in line with the largest possible concepts of disclosure and comes with a revealing internal geometry and a latitude on the earth that gives one an absolute you know, bona fide code key to figuring out which monoliths are real and which are the copycats. And what's very interesting in the way they're all, you know, performing. In fact, let me go here. I think I need to refresh the page. If you go to number four, um, the the number of monoliths in Britain has now been up to to four. Four monoliths in Britain, including one inside an ancient stone circle. Uh, and they just show up. I mean, it's very, 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 very much like circles, anyone? Except these are on every continent. They're in every hill and dale. They're on the, in the middle of nowhere or in the center of small towns. They're on the beach. You know, they're on the top of Glastonbury Tor, which is an ancient um, uh, earthwork left over from thousands of years ago. Um, there's a trend curve here because the message of the monoliths that we've decoded, and we're going to get into it with Scott, you know, as we evolve through the morning, the message we've decoded is very specific to latitudes, longitudes, internal tetrahedral geometry, which this audience well knows is a significator of the physics, torsion field physics, whereby you can draw unlimited amounts of energy out of the vacuum, the, um, the so-called zero point between dimensions, and it gives you unlimited power, it gives you anti-gravity, it gives you everything. It's the code key to the kingdom. Well, isn't it interesting that in the midst of this rather bizarre set of physical objects appearing very much in most people's minds, like the monolith in Arthur Clark and Stanley Kubrick's 2001, and that's where the designation monolith actually has comparison of these two structures with the E.T. alien teaching machine that was behind the construct that Arthur created in the form of this four by nine, four, one by four by nine doorway that was the monolith. Well, now. That obviously right there, because the story broke around the world that these monoliths were some kind of imitation, eerie imitation of Arthur's 2001 and Stanley's film. So what do we get in the same time frame? We have the former head of Israeli security space program giving an interview in the mainstream media saying that the aliens have asked not to be revealed who are running around saying that humanity is not yet ready. 
So, of course, now you've got a connection between, you know, the Israeli head of the security space programs and people who think that the monoliths are part of some kind of alien um, messaging system. Well, we could go on. In fact, number number five, I think, hang on, my, my screen's going crazy. Yes, there's a time lag since we're doing this in an unusual way tonight, technically. Calm down, big fella. Okay, number six. The Department of Public Safety of the state of Utah has posted on their website, the Aero Bureau, a remarkable series of images and videos of the object that appeared in Utah and was discovered uh, November 18th of, of this year. And that's what we're going to be starting with when we discuss monoliths. But we're going to talk about so much more because my guest tonight is none other than the Scott Walter. And some may say, Scott, Scott Walter? Who is Scott Walter? Well, if you don't know by now, you're going to know by the end of the evening. Scott is the rather charismatic and very well-researched uh, forensic geologist who has been hosting for the last several years a remarkable history program called America Unearthed. It's lasted for, what, three seasons, I think, 39. Oh, my, 39 one-hour episodes on the History Channel. While Scott explored all kinds of astonishing mysteries, uh, in fact, tonight we catch him kind of on the trail of another one, which he may give us a hint as to what it's about, or then again, he may not be able to for the time being. Anyway, Scott Walter is best known perhaps as History Channel's hit show, America on Earth, which followed him on his quest to uncover truth beyond controversial historic artifacts and sites found throughout North America and beyond. He also coasted history's pirate treasure of the Knights Templar, which was about the late 17th century pirate shipwrecks, Freemasons, and the Knights Templar. Scott's the author of several books, including Akhenaten to the Founding Fathers, The Mystery of the Hooked X, and The Hooked X, Key to the Secret History of North America. Together, these books cover the story of his continuing research and resulting discoveries made over the last 15 years, beginning with his ongoing quest to uncover the mysteries of the controversial Kensington runestone that he was able to examine in 2001. Kensington Stone is a medieval document carved in rock, which Scott proposed is a land claim carved in Minnesota in 1362 by a party of exploring Templar Knights. Graduated with a bachelor's degree in geology and earth science from the University of Minnesota Duluth back in 1982. Professionally, Scott, the forensic geologist, has worked as a petrographer since 1985. In 1990, he founded American Petrographic Services and continues to serve as its president. He has been the principal investigator in more than seven Thousand, you heard right, 7,000 material forensic investigations throughout the world, including the evaluation of the fire-damaged concrete from the Kent Pentagon following the attacks of September 11th, 2001. So, Scott, without further ado, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Well, Richard, thank you for having me on there. That was a very nice bio and introduction. And so... And by the way, we did four seasons, a total of 49 oh, episodes. Oh, 
But you know, there was update, the first. You need to update the page that Laura stole that from, so that we. Yeah, can, you know. yeah, that's okay. It's you know, we we did three seasons, and then we went off the air for a while when they sold H two, and we thought we were done, and then we got resurrected after about three years and did another season, and who knows if we'll we'll keep going, but uh, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Well, let me, you know, I, I, given my science background started with Cronkite and NASA, I have a kind of a metonymic way of looking at this stuff. I like to begin, since we're both storytellers, I like to begin the beginning. So I want to probe into the story of Scott Walter. <laughs> Who is Scott Walter and how did he wind up on the other side of midnight on, uh, on December 12th, 2020? How did get into maybe the most interesting job in the world. <laughs> well, that's a, oh my gosh, where to, where to begin? I mean, I guess really, you know, the, the story for me began with the Kensington Runestone. I mean, as far as getting into this line of work, I've been running this materials forensic laboratory since uh, 1990, January of 1990. And I don't, I don't even admit how many years ago that is. But anyway, um, when that stone came into our lab in July of 2000, actually, um, I'd, I'd never heard of the Kensington Runestone. I didn't know the story. I certainly didn't know that there was a paradigm, uh, a narrative about the history of, uh, of the world. And You know, that is so funny because when I was growing up in the 50s, my mother knew about the Kensington Runestone. Really? That had something as primitive as libraries that you physically had to go to and <laughs> physically get an object called a book and yes. bring it home and read it. I mean, you in the 70s, 80s, 90s had never Kensington Runestone? No, I always tell wow. people I must have missed school that day. I, I, <laughs> I, I didn't know. Um, it was funny because there was a representative that came into the uh, into my office and he sat down and, and briefed me on 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 the runestone and he's talking to me and I could tell that he was an advocate for it and I'll never forget. I, I stopped him about halfway through his presentation. I said, "Look, pal," I said, "I'll be happy to do this work for you. You need to understand that when I get done, I may come back and give you news you're not going to like." And you're still going to pay me because I, it doesn't matter what the results are. I get paid either way. And you just need to be prepared for that. I'm not here to validate your beliefs. I'm going to get to the truth, and it may not be what you want to hear. Um, and I'm used to doing that because in my everyday work, we, we, you know, we look at concrete failures primarily. And the first thing they want to know is what caused the failure. And the second thing is who's going to pay for it. So somebody's going to get bad news, and um, it doesn't matter to me the the the, the data the data the results are the results, and and uh, that's it. So he took what I said, I think, pretty well, and and he said, I'm okay with that. So let's go. And the I guess the best way for me to put this, um, and I, I I mean this honestly, is. Rocks have never lied to me. Some people have. And the beautiful thing about rocks and about concrete, which is essentially a man-made rock, is they don't have egos. They don't care. They just are. So I trust them. And when we did the analysis on the runestone, it told me that the weathering of the inscription was old. Therefore, it had to be genuine. Okay, and and I those, trusted it. For those folks that like 
you did not know about the runestone, start at the beginning. Who was it that found it? When was it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I can do, yeah. I can do this real quick. Um, the Kensington runestone was found by a Swedish immigrant farmer named Olaf Ullman, who was clearing trees uh, in preparation for farming with his two oldest sons, and uh, in the fall of 1898, and as they were tipping over this, um, well, Olaf said he cut off the, the roots around the base of the tree, and then they took a winch and, and pulled the tree down, and this pulled the stump out of the ground at the same time, pretty smart, and uh, tightly wrapped uh, in, you know, the roots almost directly under the, the base of the tree was this 202-pound stone that the younger of the two sons noticed had... Uh, some symbols carved on it, and it was quickly realized that they were Scandinavian runes along with a whole bunch of other stuff we now know. But um, uh, a reasonable translation was put together within the first six months of its discovery. Now, looking back at that time, we know that they, they, they made tons of errors, but they're forgivable now, uh, given what we know at this point. But they didn't understand it, and so they quickly dismissed it as a hoax because if the academics, you know, if they can't figure it out, well, then must be something wrong with it, right? And this yep. is one of the fundamental mistakes of not just the runestone, but of many other out-of-place artifacts or mysterious artifacts that don't fit the narrative. If, if it doesn't fit, then it has to be something wrong with it. And it actually gets much worse as you dig deeper, but but it was the runestone where it all started. And and so for a um, hundred and, oh my God, starting in 2000, at that point, it was 102 years, it was considered a hoax. And now the, the tide is turning, but it's based solely on the factual evidence of the geology, which serves as the foundation. And, you know, once the rock told me it was real, and once you say something like that, then a whole bunch of other things must be true. Like, for example, if it's a legitimate, authentic 14th century artifact, that means that somebody carved it. They came from some place for some reason. And that's what I've spent the last 18 years trying to figure out. And Richard, I think I've gotten to the bottom of that well, finally. And it's an amazing story. Well, it's an excellent jumping off place, so please continue. We've got about uh, uh, six minutes till the bottom of the hour. Well, I guess if I'm going to continue, I guess what it, what I really were, were took a turn for me uh, was when I did the um, a tombstone study where I compared the weathering of tombstones with the weathering of the inscription, and I concluded that it was at least 200 years old, it was older than 200 years from the date it was found, right? Because it hasn't been in a weathering environment since. Well, if it's older than 200 years from 1898, then the farmer who everybody accused of carving it couldn't have carved it, right? In fact, nobody walking on the planet could have carved it. Well, if it's not a late 19th century hoax, then you only have one other possibility. It has to be real. And once you say that, like I said before, certain logic things take place, but it also means that everything in that inscription, the runes, the dialect, the grammar, the dating, the codes, the strange symbols, everything has to be consistent with the 14th century. It must be true. So that um, forced me, I guess you could say, because what happened is when I reported the geology, I had people that came out, questioned me, criticized me, and attacked me. 
And I, I was confused at first, but eventually I got, I got pissed. And I said, look, if, if you have a question, go ahead and ask me the question. Um, if I made a mistake, I'll fix it. I'm not perfect. But, they, but it wasn't that. They just didn't like the result. Um, well, that's, that's too bad. Well, not if a hundred-year-old mistake has not been a mistake at all, but part of a carefully orchestrated multi-level government and non-governmental institutional requirement that these kind of discoveries just quietly go away. They're embarrassing. Well, you know what, Richard? The bottom line is this. Things like the Kensington Runestone, the Bat Creek Stone, the Tucson Lead Artifacts, the Newport Tower, the Narragansett Runestone, Spirit Pond, all these. There's a bunch of them, okay? The problem with these artifacts is once you accept them as authentic, any one of them, what happens is you trigger a series of dominoes to fall. And they go to inconvenient places for some people. Yep. One of those institutions is the Roman Catholic Church. And you would be surprised um, how much influence they have in this arena. Oh, not that surprised. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, well, um, you get it then. They're, they're the antagonists in this story. And I know well, they all- show up even in discussions vis-a-vis NASA and are there ruins on other planets? Do we have a library catalog of, of artifacts not just on Earth, but all over the solar system that vastly predate what we think of as our current technological civilization. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, and, and not just that, but it threatens the uh, it threatens their um, their whole essence, their whole being, their whole message. Suddenly, you have to rethink it, right? And the story that they've been telling us uh, as the church authority suddenly is in question big time, if not completely debunked. So it's it's bigger than that. It's 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 their very existence um that that that's threatened. The thing I remember about the runestone that kind of convinced it for me is the the uh the farmer and his sons reported they found it wrapped in the tree roots and then much later forensic analysis indicated that there were acids from tannin and other secretions of trees that were into the upper layers, which meant, you know, if someone faked that, they'd have to have an incredibly sophisticated pharmacopoeia background, something that an old Swedish farmer probably didn't have. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny you mention that because to my knowledge, I'm the first person to bring that up. Those actually, yeah, the root leaching on the backside of the stone, I'll never forget when we, brought it into the lab the first time, I actually invited three of my retired professors from the University of Minnesota Duluth and a couple of professors from the University of Minnesota, and they all showed up. And all I wanted them to do was take a look at the, I mean, they they were all interested. They all knew what it was. They also understood the controversy and the history, and they were fascinated to have an opportunity to look at it. I was thrilled to death that these people that I respected that actually are were the world's experts, you know, experts to bring in and talk about this because the rock turns out is a Minnesota rock, right? So I'm talking talking with the preeminent geologists uh, uh, in Minnesota to look at this rock. But it was Dick Ojekangas, Dr. Richard Ojekangas. He's retired now. 
who was the first one to notice the, the white root leaching on the back. And, huh. and what's really important about that, you, you talked about that there's a chemical reaction that happens um, with the, the root when it's young uh, in contact with, with the stone in this case. And what it, what it does is it leaches out the pigment elements within the rock, the magnesium and iron uh, minerals with their or elements within the rock is food for the tree. But what's interesting is that the witnesses at the time of the discovery said that the roots going around the back of the stone were three and a half inches wide and flattened from prolonged contact. Yet these roots were only about a maximum of a half inch wide. And for me, that was a disconnect at first. But what happened is I ended up talking to some plant physiologists and soil scientists, and they explained to me that it was the leading edge of the root, that's the active part of the root, where this process take place, takes place. And as the tree grows, the root system expands, that active part moves on, a bark uh, grows, and that process stops. So what was an apparent disconnect to me turned out to be perfectly plausible and fit in beautifully as it must if if it is indeed legitimate. So that's one of the other things that's cool about forensics. You can't have any piece of data hanging out there that doesn't fit, because if you do, you're not there yet. And for me, that was one of the, the hanging chads, if you will, that didn't make sense at first <laughs> until I talked to the, the, the proper experts and all of a sudden it, it made perfect sense. But I'm, I'm impressed that you brought that up. Not many people talk about the root leaching as compelling evidence, and you're 100% right. You see what wasting my time reading has done? Anyway. <laughs> well, you mean those silly little things we call books? Remember those? Oh, those, yeah, from the library. Yeah. Hey, right. um, we have just enough time to kind of tease before the break at the bottom of the hour. Okay. You obviously, like I've been on a whole bunch of other people, you've been watching this whole monolith thing. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's kind of get you on the record as to what you think's going on, and then we can pick up the details on the other side. Okay. Well, I, I think there's a couple things going on here, and you know, I, I, you know, I don't profess to be an expert, although I'm always looking for details because I'm a detail freak and that's what I do. But I noticed a couple things. The very first one that showed up in Utah looked to me like a really nicely crafted, well-made, tight-seamed monolith that was, uh, interestingly, an equilateral triangle when you look at it from above. But the other thing was, the first thing I thought of when I saw it is, how was that thing anchored in the ground? Well, I ended up seeing a video online that actually showed some saw cuts where um, somebody had taken a cutoff saw and cut you know, a triangle and, and placed this thing in there. And I was looking for any evidence of cementitious material like concrete or grout, but it looked to me to be well done. But on the other hand, there's been a couple that I've seen that look to be knockoffs. Um, I don't think they're directly related. They might be copycats or something like that. And the reason I say that is that just from the photos I've seen, they don't look to be as well-crafted. Um, there's seams along the edges, and they seem to be kind of open and tight, you know, wandering a little bit. They just don't seem to be of the same manufacturer. And I just don't think that whoever started this um, – would get that sloppy. Does that make sense? <clears throat> totally, totally. Okay, we've got a couple of minutes, maybe a minute 30 to the bottom of the hour. I don't want to get into meanings and all that, but did you have the feeling that the one in Utah 
was not really accidental, but that it was kind of revealed on a on a schedule. Um, yeah, I've heard. I, you know, and and some of the other ones seem to be on a schedule. And like you said before, uh, some of these things might also be um, laid out in some type of you know geogra- geometric pattern geographically on the Earth. So I haven't looked in that at that in any uh, detail, but. Uh, wouldn't surprise me at all. Well, they are. We've got the goods, and we're going to get to that when we come back from the other side of the break. My guest. All right, I'm going to grill you then. <laughs> okay. My <laughs> guest this morning is Scott Walter, host and executive producer of Four Seasons of America Unearthed on the History Channel. Um, I'm kind of wondering why it's still not on the air because we're getting to the good stuff. And as part of other things that we're going to get into when we uh, uh, come back. We're going to talk about how this monolith pattern is companioning some very behind-the-scenes discussions about something that you would not think it was connected with at all, namely UFOs, aliens, ETs. When we come back, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. You're on the other side of midnight. We shall return. They are so few, they're in the thousands. We are billions, we are billions of people. So they need technology, very advanced technology today to control us. And that is where AI, 5G comes in. And then through the vaccine also get rid of two thirds of us. So it's like a very, very, very dark agenda. They want to play out. But I tell you, the way I see the future, oh my God, fantastic. Oh, like my mom said, fan-bloody-tastic. Hi, this is Ola Damagod from LightOnConspiracies.com. You know, over the years, I've done some 500 to 1,000 international interviews, and I just want to say, The Other Side of the News is one of my favorite shows. So, enjoy. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Okay, almost ready. Okay, welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday night, December 12, 2020. A night which will live in history because of two extraordinary things uh, that have taken place, which 
you can read about it at your leisure. And obviously, there's a tertiary tree there, so that one link will follow another link will follow another link. We are going through extraordinary times. Remember, I've done programs with uh, people like uh, uh, Rick Levine and uh, Georgia Lambert. We were trying to figure out the metaphysics of what's driving the train now, what's creating such extraordinary swings, such chaos, such turbulence. And the best model I can think of is the kind of chaotic noise you hear when you're listening uh, to amateur radio, where frequencies are being jumbled and new information is kind of being created out of the synthesis of other previous channels. Mm. Anyway, um, enough of my musings. My guest this morning is Scott Walter. And where do you want to jump into the whole monolith thing? Well, I'm not sure. I guess I could just tell you what I've seen and what, what I think might be going on. Um, I mean, obviously, we've seen, we, where, what are we up to now, like six or seven or eight? I heard one showed up in Fayetteville, North, North Carolina. Did you hear about that? Yeah, we have it in our uh, radio with pictures. We have a link to it. Oh, okay. You know, I was just there about three weeks ago, and and I was shooting, um, taking pictures of the um, statue of uh, Lafayette there. So I got there a little bit early. If I would have been, if they would have put it up a few weeks ago, I would have seen it. But in any case, um, I think you and I talked about <clears throat> before the break that you know I see them as two different types of monoliths. I see one that looks really well done, beautifully crafted, and um, just better quality or craftsmanship than a couple of photos I've seen of the others, which I think could be copycats. I'm not sure, but that's my gut feeling. But um, but as far as the ones that appear to be showing up um, that are done by some mysterious shadowy group, I think one of the theories that I've heard people talk about that makes a lot of sense to me is that the government, maybe even the CIA is behind it as a way of getting people to start talking about something other than politics and COVID um, because that's dominated the news cycle really for certainly the last year. And, you know, politics for the last three and a half, four years have just been frenetic, right? And, you know, there have been a few um, articles and, and news reports about extraterrestrial phenomena, but it seems to have just bounced off of people's foreheads and not really garnered much attention because of the frenetic news cycle. So I'm wondering if maybe these models might be a way of getting people's attention to, to take a step back from everything else that's coming at them and say, what the hell are these things? And when you look at them, my first thought was, Boy, these things look otherworldly, don't they? That doesn't mean that they are, and frankly, I, I don't think they are. But maybe it's it's a, 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 a group within our own government or maybe multiple governments that are trying to get people to think about things a little bit differently than what they've been thinking about for the last year for sure and, and before that. And maybe it's it's to just sort of change the collective consciousness a little bit. And I think it's working. I think it's brilliant, quite frankly. I mean, it could also be, I've also read that it was a group of uh, an international artist consortium that is putting these things up to bring attention to art. Um, 
I guess that's a possibility, but I like the first idea better. Uh, and I think it's, if that's what the intention is, it's working masterfully. And I think it's getting people to just think about things other than, you know, the troubles that everybody is going through right now. It's a tough time for everyone around the world. And this has sort of been a fun break from all of that. I don't know. What do you think? You still there? Yeah, I have to mute my microphone because uh, I'm having a frog in my throat. Hang on. Oh, I thought. I... <laughs> Dry desert air. Okay. Anyway, um, have you looked at the background of the first one that appeared in that Utah Canyon? Well, I, I not not in detail. All I heard was this one article said that 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 monolith had been there since 2016 or 2017. Yeah, we know that because of Google Earth and the fact that before a certain date, it's not there. And after a certain date, which was October of 2016, right before the election, it was there. So it's been there at least four years and nobody found it. Mm-hmm. So, of course, what does the Department of Public Safety of the state of Utah do, even though they did not want to reveal where it was? They built an entire website, <clears throat> which is one of my Radio with Pictures items toward the bottom. I think it's uh, six or seven. And they list every photograph they took, every video, every comment they made in the field. I mean, if you want to see a, a, a stunning tour de force of imagery that shows that this canyon, to start with, was not chosen at random. What's on the walls, the three-dimensional sculptures the frieze, the connections of art, the, the different shadow techniques are stunningly sophisticated, and they're not at the level of pictographs or petroglyphs of Native Americans. These are three-dimensional sculptures that, for some reason, <clears throat> the guys that went to destroy it weeks later, days later, and they found two photographers to document what was going on, <clears throat> those photographers documented in their moonlight shots, additional levels of this imagery to the point where I looked at this and I said, well, this thing cannot be some random art project because they're denoting something that's so historic on the walls of this canyon that they, in fact, are, you know, triggering a message that extends in our work, not just here on Earth, but on the planet Mars. Artwork in that canyon, denoted by an obelisk that everybody associates with the movie 2001, which is about aliens tinkering with human beings. That canyon has on the walls ancient arc depicting that exact story of Mm. alien interference with developing Homo sapiens and all kinds of genetic tinkering. And the coding the mathematical coding in the monolith itself, you made note of, of the fact that it's really an equilateral triangle raised to a height of 12 feet, which makes it automatically a three-dimensional, <clears throat> hyperdimensional tetrahedron, which has an inscribed angle. When you, you know, put a tetrahedron inside a sphere, it winds up as part of the physics we've been looking at for the last 30 years, predicting energy upwellings on Earth 
on Jupiter, on the sun, on other stars. <clears throat> it's an energy signature. So whoever built this monolith knew the physics of circumscribed tetrahedral geometry because the latitude of this monolith in that little canyon is within a whisker on the circumference of the Earth of 19.47 degrees times two. It's within a mile or two, and probably because this is a location where something very important to human history has been buried, like an archive, like oh. a library, like a code key, like treasure so, map is not exactly what I think, but in the sense of the national treasure of the movie, you could think of it in that way. Anyway, the final data point. Because of Google Earth and the fact that we've got a top-down satellite view, we have the exact orientation of the tetrahedron slash equilateral triangle. And using Google as our reference, it is exactly 19.5 degrees off true north, pointed toward the cleft in the canyon walls that the State Department of Public Safety Utah guys made comments about in their video. In other words, it's the anchor point of a stunning set of human ancient revelations. Hmm. Wow. That was pretty good. I can impress John Walker, then it must be doing something. No, no, that was that was very good. Um, but, you know, I, I think it, you know. Okay, hang on, hang on. I got to ask the next question. Okay. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, uh-huh. is to go to Utah and carry out an insight in situ scientific investigation of that canyon. The canyon is overwhelmingly important as part of disclosure, which is uh-huh. why they have involved you. Well, I'm 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 in. Let's let's do it. I mean, if if a Travel Channel wants to do uh, an investigation and or send us out there, there's a lot of things that we could do. And you know, are you given- kidding? We've got the keys to the kingdom. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I'm in. I'm I'm game. But you know, I mean, I, I, well, what I was going to say is, I think you laid out a really interesting um, set of. Of, of facts, if, if I'm, I'm going to take them at face value, but you know, I guess the first and foremost. Well, hang on, what, hang on. You don't have to take them at face value. If you go, let me let me check my thing here and see whether Laura's Johnny on the spot like she usually is. And I'm going here, and I'm refreshing so I can see because I just had her add one more link to my radio with pictures, and you're going to want to go to the computer, take a look. Uh, Ah, yeah, number seven. This is the Google Earth satellite view of the monolith with its shadow taken just before noon. I forget which day. In October, I believe, of uh, of last year. The vertical line is north. The sideline at 19.5 is directly up that canyon where the Utah guys, three scientists, and not one of them took a flashlight and tried to go up there and see if there was something important there. Yeah, yeah. How can you have well, scientists who are so damn uncurious? <laughs> well, you'd be surprised how um, 
how some really smart people can make some really silly mistakes. But um, no, I think it, it, it begs further investigation. And there's a lot, I mean, I would like to look at the base. Like I said, I want to see how that was. Uh, you okay. Know. One of the things you're going to find out when you get there, and I will start sending you a database of images that we've kind of pre-selected because they show certain things. For instance, I'm going to hop around a little bit on this story. Many years ago, when I had a heart attack in Florida, and I meant the love of my life, Robin, we went to a place called Coral Castle. Right. And she walked through the door, and she looked across this compound, and she saw a stunning figure carved by Leed Scalman, the 90-pound you know, uh, weakling who did this all by himself in the middle of the night, just north of Homestead Air Force Base. Anyway... She saw this carving on the wall above what turned out to be his wash basin. And what it was was a double inscribed equilateral triangle in a freeze 3D relief representing a double tetrahedron. And it was over water because water is the analogy to the torsion field, which is accessed by means of this geometry and resonant physics. And so water is the best analogy with the ether, with the torsion field, et cetera, et cetera. Well, guess what, Scott? I have found an identical carved three-dimensional double tetrahedron relief in this Utah canyon. Hmm. Well, next where the yeah. monolith is aimed. So what you're saying is it's not a coincidence. This was no. all carefully crafted, no. carefully laid no. out. Now, at some level, the other the other two that appear, the one in Romania and the one in California, those, I think, are, are real in the sense they were done by the same group to communicate the same message because the three of them form a combined code, which, again, reiterates 39 degrees, which is twice 19.5, the circumscribed tetrahedral angle, <clears throat> and 6666666 to infinity, which involves the number of the beast metaphysics, uh, spirituality, and who the hell is the human race, really? Mm -hmm. And for the odds of this to be happening, unless they were positioned exactly where they were, and they all appeared and disappeared on the same day that the previous one appeared. So I think the first three were real. Whether the other half dozen have now appeared a real or part of an ascending meme, so there's a public consciousness, so at some point the wave kind of takes over itself and you get this replicating of the consciousness behind the pattern to look for the next thing, the next message, the next data point. Well, yeah. And if you use that type of geometry, if you can crack the code, so to speak, you should be able to predict where the next one's going to show up. Right. Is that what you're getting at? Well, under the best of all possible worlds, the problem is at those two latitude lines around the Earth, in both hemispheres, you have almost an infinite number of points. You need to add another uh, angle like when it appears, which, of course, we don't know, because that would give you a time hack, which would either be a solar angle or a lunar angle or a stellar angle to a constellation, et cetera, et cetera. But since we only have these geographic data points, we know, based on the three, they were all tetrahedrons. They all were in the right size range. And the one in Romania 
had a tilted tetrahedral top at 19.5 degrees to the local horizontal. Hmm. A message within a message. In other well, words, you, redundancy. You, you have spent quite a bit of time on this. You got it nailed down. So let me just... <laughs> Let me just ask you a question. So it sounds to me like you've, you, you believe, and sound, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that there's, uh, there's definitely a message that being tra- they're trying to convey here, whoever they are. Yep. What, is, what is the topic that they want people to, what is it they want people to think about? What is the message of, of these monoliths? What are they trying to tell the humanity, the world? It's funny you should ask, because I see it as a <clears throat> television show with Scott Walters, the host, <laughs> and it's called, Who is the Real Humanity? Will the real humanity please stand up? Mm. It's nothing less than who we are, how we've been tinkered with by extraterrestrial forces, and those forces now seem to want to come clean. Mm. So you think this is a message to get people to pay attention to the whole ET question. Exactly. So, what was the okay, first? Okay. So, hold, hold, the, on. hold on one sec. So what, okay. that, what that means is, is you're, you're making an assumption um, that ETs are real, right? I, I'm, oh, I'm no, 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 no. Think of public memes. It's all about public consciousness. When this thing started to appear, the first, the first meme established by the employees of the state of Utah. What do they say on camera, on the record, and now on their official website? I don't know what they say. They said, if this thing is an alien machine and it beams up one of us, the others run like hell. <laughs> well, I would. If I didn't get beamed up, I'd be, yes. I'd be doing the high The pilots stayed on the slopes above the canyon, safely photographing the three Doomcocks who went in. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, the that's, fact, one, that's one, one message. But um, so, do you think that this is to bring the collective? I, I'm going to call it the collective consciousness. People of the world with these things term. to start to start thinking about this. You know, we're, there's other people out there. Uh, exactly. Okay. And guess what? They're not aliens. They're relatives. They're like us. They are us. They're just cousins or second cousins or 25th cousins. And some of them live in different real estate, so they look a little different. But most of them, certainly in New York, you could ride on the subway and you would never even know they were not from here. Well, that's interesting because I've had some discussions with people in the um, – um, in the intelligence community um, that work with the Department of Defense who have reached out to me on this very subject matter. And, you know, I have to be honest with you, I'm a relative neophyte on this subject matter. And five years ago, if you would have talked to me, I would have said, thanks, but no thanks. But it's been um, one hell of a um, frenetic five years for me, especially in the in the last year and a half or so with this this topic. And I've had some, I've had some people that have said, why are you Scott, a geologist? Why would you venture into this arena with, with ETs and, uh, and, and, and all of that? 
And that's a really good question. But you know what my answer is? My answer is it really doesn't matter what I'm researching, what I'm studying. Um, the process of investigation is the same. You gather the facts, if you can. You interpret those facts. And if you have enough that you feel you can draw a definitive conclusion, you do it. So it doesn't matter to me if I'm looking at rune stones, I'm looking at concrete, or I'm looking at the ET question. And, and quite frankly, I find this subject matter extremely fascinating, and I have learned a hell of a lot in the last year. And even though I, I, I'm still gathering more information, um, the whole question of, of extraterrestrials being here and if they are here, I think the overriding message that I'm getting that makes sense to me is that you're right. They, they do look like us. Uh, one of the things that I heard is that the, you know, the big-headed, almond-shaped uh, eyes, you know, aliens that people typically think of are not the aliens. Those are no. bio they're biological drones, right? Am I right about that? Remember, Arthur C. Clarke, Third Law. Any, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I just find it stunningly coincidental, serendipitous, too much to swallow, that in the same time frame that we maybe have been attacked by an alien extraterrestrial virus, which is what my modeling with Dr. Uh, um, Chandra Singh and some others has led us in the direction of. You're talking about you're talking about COVID, right? Yes, COVID nineteen. It's a weapon being directed at us from outside. What's, at the same was, time, you got the Pentagon over and over again validating the Nimitz videos, the gun camera footage, the New York Times story, and then you got the Pentagon leaking from their own internal memos now online generals discussing the other, the visitors, the. Aliens, and then you got this security guy, general from Israel. <clears throat> By the way, what's the shape of the flag of Israel? Well, let's say uh, it's the star. Well, it's the. Um, it's a double. Well, I call it the seal of Solomon. Yeah, because it goes back to Solomon to the physics of the double tetrahedral, which right. of course ultimately is being communicated by the symbology. The point is, all these dots are rushing to come together. It could have been any head of any security force who came out and said, they're real, but they're shy, and they don't really want us to talk about them yet. It's not time. Of course it's time. Well, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's it's past time. It's past time. It's past time because... It's the only well, thing that, frankly, I think is going to save this frigging planet. Well, okay, so you know what, Richard? That's a great point, um, and and that is that is something that's been near and dear to my heart for a long time. Is you know, you and I grew up in in I think probably one of the best times in in the history of humanity. And if we look back on the, the the timeline that we understand to be true, we lived through some glorious times, and and our kids and our grandkids, I'm worried about the world that we're leaving for them. And I just, you know, I, I don't want to get into politics. You can, you can debate politics all day long, but the point is, is we are not being responsible citizens of our planet, which is a living thing. And, you know, if, if there are ETs here, this is their home too. Right. And, 
And and they actually, I guess, from my perspective, based on what I understand, they do have some other options, but they want this, this planet to survive as well. We don't have, as humans, other options. And I don't understand how the majority of humanity doesn't get that and, and why we don't take the steps that are required right now, right now, to to be more responsible. Um, because... If, if we don't take responsibility, we're not going to be here. We're, we're just simply not going to be here. Well, you know, Scott, before this whole COVID thing, I would have said, I'm with you. I don't understand how people can be in such denial. But I've seen people I respect, people who have thoughtful processes. They go about trying to collate information, and they've come down on the side that this whole pandemic thing is a is a scam. It's not real. It's a fake. It's a hoax. You know, they eschew masks, and I would never have imagined that I could see that happening in real time to people that I know and care about and respect. But it turns out reality is incredibly malleable. And right now, as predicted by the physics model that I've been talking about, everything is up in the air because reality is literally up for grabs. It's, it's malleable. It's changeable. Ultimately, we're going to get the future that we want. The question is how much of us are going to be coherent enough to demand the future that we deserve. <laughs> well, that's – yeah, that's – that's. Um, I don't even really know what to say um, because, like you said, um, I am – every day I'm surprised at – how how some people think, you know, pretending that there isn't a virus. It's like, why would you take a risk? Why, what makes you so confident? And a lot of these people, you see it all the time, that deny that this is there. They end up getting sick and dying. And it's like, I I just don't get it. But, you know, and then people, their friends people are different. <laughs> people are different. Their friends don't believe they died of COVID. And what's even more shocking is we now have multiple reports from hospitals, people literally dying of COVID who think it's a hoax and yeah. they must have something else. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it reminds me of something a, a lawyer friend of mine said one time. And I had a discussion with a friend here recently about something different. But, you know, you're entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And you know, sometimes people to justify their beliefs or their opinion about something will create a different set of facts to support that belief. And they're just not facts. They're just, it's, um, yeah. Well, that, that's why it's so important to make top. sure. Yeah. Scott, hang on. We're at the top yeah, of the ahead. hour. My guest okay. this morning is Scott Walter, host of America Unearthed, which went four season on the History Channel. And who knows, he might be doing a new series because what is in the canyon in Utah marked by a monolith is not just connected to ETs, but it's somehow connected to us, to earthlings, to homo sapiens. It's the missing glue that I've been looking for in connection with disclosure, which combines real science, archaeology, history, unearthing the truth with the UFO craziness, which frankly is sometimes as batty as a bed bug. Can this, in fact, bring it together? 
You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. We're definitely trying to figure out tonight a mystery. What could be going on in Utah? I'll tell you what, I want to kind of wind around and come at this from the backside because one of your other investigations turns out to be intimately connected with what I think is one of the solutions of who is behind the message in um, in that Utah Canyon. And I'll give you one major hint. The geometry that we have figured out in Utah is the same geometry which has been used for literally hundreds of years by the Masons. Scott? Oh, you're asking me? <laughs> yes. Well, you're talking about the equilateral triangle or what? Yeah, that plus this tower in Rhode Island. I had to get Oh, on. you're talking about the Newport Tower. Yeah, yeah. Several months ago, I had Dennis Stone on. I've had him on a couple of oh, times. Oh, yes. Dennis is a good, he's a good friend. He runs America Stonehenge up in New Hampshire. Anyway, he said that we should be talking because I know why the tower was built connects to the new world and this geometry that's much, much older, much older. So tell us about the the tower there in Rhode Island and how you came to realize it was pretty damn special. (laughs) Well, yeah, the Newport Tower is is very near and dear to me. And, you know, it it really, like I said, it started with the runestone. And then after we had figured out there was an authentic artifact, then it was 
I went over to Sweden five times to look for the, the, the runes, the dialect, the grammar, the dating, all the, the features within the inscription itself that the geology told me had to exist. And so I went over there and found everything. Um, but what, what also happened was most of the evidence that we found was in uh, churches or were in churches on one large island in the middle of the Baltic Sea. The island is called Gotland. It's part of Sweden. And there are 99 churches on that island. And I went to all 99. Of my oh, my God. Oh, I'm anal retentive, man. It took me two weeks, but I got it done. But what I saw inside those churches was fascinating. There was all kinds of interesting symbolism and beautiful crosses, which turned out to be Templar crosses. But the other thing that we came to realize is that the only person who could have carved an inscription of that complexity and length had to be a member of the, uh, of the clergy because the common people weren't educated at that time in the 14th century. Well, on this island, there was only one clergy, and they were the Cistercian monks, the, the, uh-huh. white, the monks that wore the white tunics with the black mantles. And it was the charismatic leader of the Cistercians who in 1129 wrote the charter for a military monastic order that was a branch of the Cistercians called uh, the Poor Knights of Solomon, now known as the Knights Templar. So the, the reason I'm telling you that is because the evidence trail that took me to the Knights Templar being the ones that carved the Kensington runestone was one of the easiest evidence trails I've ever followed. It went to them and nobody else but them. And everything seemed to fit. Well, it does fit perfectly for the Templars being behind it. So, of course, then I started to study the Templars, and I started to learn about their sacred round church architecture that they incorporated into some of their religious houses that were constructed on eight heavy uh, round columns with Romanesque arches tying those arches together. On t- uh, and on top of that is a round cylinder on the second story. Well, gee, what did I just describe? Hang on a sec. Hang on. Do we have a, a, a um, image of that? In, in Yes, we do. It's number three. Okay. In your section, number three is a close-up of the base, these elephant-like uh, eight pillars holding up right. stone, the Roman right. arch. And then the stones tapering above that. Um, uh, it's not clickable. It's as big as you're going to get it. But it does show some interesting features. So right. if you want to see what, what Scott's talking about, go to number three in his section of Radio with Pictures. And actually, the arrows that they will see in that photograph, the yellow arrows are pointing to um, these flat um, slate slabs of stone they put at the top of the columns, which serve as capstone ledges, which provided structural support for wooden beams that would have extended away from the tower uh, for the roof trusses for a first-story ambulatory. And if people want to Google uh, Temple uh, Round Church in London or Cambridge Round Church in Cambridge, England, you will see the exact same architecture. And if you want to see another beautifully illuminated uh, analog to the Newport Tower, go to the Chirola in the uh, Convent of Christ Castle in Tomar, Portugal, which was a Templar city at the time. Uh, it's, hey, it's Scott? The exact same architecture. Hey, Scott? Yep. Or it's just made it clickable. You can see so much more. Oh, oh there we go. Okay. 
Yeah. Uh, now, you, well, it, it actually, my my link went to my blog, and I have all these things I was just talking about are listed right there, and you can see them. So this connection to the Knights Templar suddenly is just rock solid. But there's more going on because when you when you look carefully at the Newport Tower, and there was a professor of astronomy, uh, Dr. Bill Penhallow who passed away a couple of years ago. He was a good friend. He was also a Freemason, I might point out. But he was a professor of astronomy who documented multiple, and in fact, numerous solar, lunar, uh, planetary alignments in the Newport Tower that uh, tie in with the heavens. So basically what the Newport Tower is, is an observatory. And I've actually made um, a few discoveries myself but probably the most important one that, I, that, that uh, I'll, I'll give myself credit for, and that is um, in the west-northwest archway on the inside of the tower. Inside the archway, there is an, a large light tan granitic stone that's in the shape of an egg with these, you know, the pointed end down. Huh. And on the morning of the winter solstice, which is coming up here in about a week and a half, um, there is an event that happens. And what happens is the south window, if you look at the picture of the tower, you see it has windows, right? The south window creates a light box from the rising sun. This is the one marked by the red arrow on the right side of the tower? Well, that's actually the west window, but it's just, you know, not even a quarter turn to the right. And I know that's the west window because if you look at that, large uh, horizontal lintel at the top. You see those angled stones that are kind of in a V-shape on the top? That's the west window. But anyway, um, on on the south window, this light box is created on the winter solstice, and it frames up and illuminates that egg-shaped keystone at exactly 9 o'clock in the morning. Oh, my. I mean, you can't make this up, right? No. (laughs) So... Can I tell you a story about something that happened at the tower? Oh, yeah. Well, I think you're going to tell, definitely want to tell that one. Okay. Well, there's more to that story than um, I've, I've told people. But in any case, you know, this was a discovery. I may have an answer to your mystery. Okay. So okay. Let's, let, okay. Let's, let's get the audience up to speed on, on what happened. And I didn't tell this story for a long time because I, I, I quite frankly didn't understand what the heck happened myself. But I had seen a photograph of a local um, photographer in town there, a guy by the name of Jim Egan, had taken a picture. He lives right across from the tower. And he had shown that this light was hitting this, this stone. He didn't know what it was, but the second I saw it, I said, oh, my God, I know exactly what that is, because I had done all this research on the Templars and their ideology and, and, uh, you know, as above, so below and all those concepts. But I decided I have to test this thing for myself. I need to see if this really happens on this date. And ironically, December 21st, which is the shortest, darkest day of the year, according to uh, my wife, Janet, um, so I went, I made a point to go to the tower and see if this actually happened. So I made arrangements with the, um, uh, the, the, um, the people with the city. I had a key to the fence to go in there. 
is located in a kind of a city park now, right? Yeah, it's called Turo Park. It's up at the top of the hill. It would be the perfect place, the highest point in the area, to put um, an observatory, right? Now, remember, uh, back when this thing was built, circa 1400, there weren't all the houses and everything that, that were there. And if they cut down some of the trees, if they were even there at that time, they would have had a perfect vantage point looking out over the harbor and, of course, into the heavens. But on December 21st of 2007, I made a point to try to document this illumination. And I made arrangements, and I, I, I went in there, and, and at 8.15 in the morning, I was set up. I walked inside. I set up my tripod. I put my camera in. I looked at the west window, the one you're looking at in that picture right now, because the south window light box actually goes through the west window before it gets down to the keystone. And the, and the light box was just coming out of that west window and starting the march down to the Keystone. And I took my first shot at 8.15, and I'm like, yes, I'm going to capture these photos all going all the way down. And just after I took that first photo, I heard a voice behind me. It said, what are you doing in there? And I turned around because I was startled because there wasn't nobody there, I thought. And here was this attractive woman standing there and she's kind of looking at me with this you're not supposed to be in there look right and she had this old dog next to her who was outside the fence and I mean she's literally three feet away from me I'm on the inside of the fence she's on the outside and I look at her and I'm like uh, well uh, it's kind of a long story and she folds her arms and she says I've got time I said, oh, okay um, well you see that light box coming out of that window there I think it's going to frame this out and on that egg-shaped keystone and I started going into the whole thing and the research and everything and she stuck around the whole time and we got along great I would turn around and keep taking my pictures as the light box was moving to the egg and then it happened light box framed out the egg it's a light tan color I mean it it was glowing like a like a beacon and we have a photograph I do have a photograph of it. I don't know if I put it on this page, um, but it's incredible. It is incredible. I think I do have one somewhere, but I, I can't remember which blog it was. But in any case, it just was amazing. And, of course, I was all excited. And for me, it was validation. It was one of those moments when you just say to yourself, this is right. I'm on the right track. All this stuff I've been it, – it's real. This, this is the truth, right? And I was, I was to the moon. Well, by this time, she had learned everything, and she recognized the significance of this moment, and she was excited, too. And at one point, she looks at me, and she says, you know, I work in public relations. Would you like me to take a, your picture with that keystone in the background? And I said, sure, and I pulled out my backup camera in my pocket. She took a picture, gave me the camera back. I said, thanks. And, and then I said, just a sec, because I wanted to turn around keep taking pictures, right, as, of the light box moving off the egg. So I turned around, took another picture, turned back to her, and she was gone. Mm. I mean, disappeared. And the dog was, and the dog was gone. And I'm, and my first, my first thought was, well, that was rude. <laughs> I thought we were getting along pretty good. And then I'm looking in the park, and if you haven't been to the park. There are very few trees there. And I'm looking to see her walk out of the dog from behind a tree, nothing. And I'm standing there for a second, like, 
nobody could get away that fast. And then about a minute later, I felt this cold chill go down my back. And I, I realized what happened could not have happened, but it did. And so anyway, you know, I had to get back home because it was my birthday. So I hustled off to Providence airport, caught a one o'clock flight and flew home. And I was still trying to process what happened, but I will tell you this. I wrote a book called the hooked X where I presented this discovery, right? And this, the, the pictures are in there and I talk about the whole thing, but I don't talk about this person. But if you look on the back of that book at the author's picture, that's the picture she took. And what you'll notice is I don't have a photographer's credit because I don't know who to credit because I never asked her her name. Why not? I don't know. I don't know. I just never did. And I kicked myself. But you know what? That was 2007. I have gone back to the tower every year. And I always tell people the reason I go back is because it's a birthday gift to myself. I want to go there and see the illumination. But the problem is, once I published it, I'm never there by myself anymore. Nope. And I don't think I ever will be again, because now it's become a pilgrimage uh, you know, site for a lot of people. Last year when I was there, there was over 200 people there. I mean, it was, it was packed. The Masonic Knights Templar um, put on a drill there. The indigenous Wampanoag tribe was there. Chief Black Eagle, and uh, um, I mean, it was just a panic. So I don't know if I'll see that woman ever again or whoever that person was. I, I, but it happened, and I'm just telling you, it happened. So what do you think, Richard? Who was she? Well, remember, we're talking about family. Yeah. I, I think she was family. Not from here. The key is the dog. Really? Where could she be with a dog if she's not from here? Uh, enlighten me. Serious. Really? ISIS personification. The dog is redundant backup. It's serious. Really? And they're one of the main drivers of, you know, contemporary human evolution. I had a bizarre meeting years and years ago. I was invited to speak in uh, Portland, and then I went an hour west, uh, or I'm sorry, east to a little place called Hillsboro, where 500 and some people showed up on a weekend, two days after I'd done, you know, some TV in Portland to talk about what I was, you know, going to show. And after my presentation, this woman comes up to me, and she, I don't remember the details, and I'm kicking myself that I didn't pay closer attention or take what she said more seriously, but she said, we're from Sirius, we're watching things, you need to continue what you're doing, and then she just disappeared into the crowd. Wow. Yeah. Hey, can, can I, I heard the story, because now it's time for all this history to be revealed. Huh. Well, can I tell you who it was who brought all this geometry, including the 19.5 business, to the North American continent? It was the Templars. Right, right. Well, you know, I can tell you as a Masonic Knights Templar myself and Freemason, 
that sacred geometry is woven all through the craft. And that's one of the things that I actually delved into in my latest book, Cryptic Code of the Templars in America. And it's, it's incredible, but um, it goes much deeper than that. But I, I, I wanted to just tell you one other quick story that sort of ties into the story I just told you that happened a couple of months ago. I got an email from somebody who was watching the show and he said, Scott, I think I have some more evidence that, that supports your Templars building the Newport Tower theory. And I said, oh, great. What is it? So he sent me another email and it was a, it was a, it was a radio interview, just like we're doing right now, where, uh, and he said, go to the 33 minute and 14 seconds or whatever it was point in the interview. And I did that. And there was a guy who was being interviewed who actually worked at a casino in Vegas. Um, he was a dealer and he worked in security and he talked about how he met this woman who walked into the casino. He said she was tall, she was blonde, she had green eyes, gorgeous. And she was walked in with this kind of short, hunched over guy that he goes, she just didn't look like she belonged with him. <laughs> and, and I couldn't I couldn't help but think about the woman at the tower and the dog, you know. But anyway, he 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 was this interview was about this conversation he had. She came in twice. And at one point he was talking in the interview and he, he says, and I asked her where she was from. She said, Newport. And he goes, I assumed it was Newport on, you know, California somewhere because he was in Vegas. She said, no, Newport, Rhode Island. Mm. And so he starts talking about something else. And then after, at the 33 minute point, he interrupts himself. He says, oh yeah. And she said something else. She said, oh, and our family and the Knights Templar built the Newport Tower in 1362. And I just about, my jaw hit the floor because this guy doesn't know anything about the tower. He didn't know anything about that. And he said so. He goes, when she said tower, he goes, I thought she was talking about like, you know, like Trump Tower or a building, you know? And he said, I, I, didn't, I didn't know what they were talking about. But he says, I do now, but... And then he reiterated, she said that Templars and her family built the Newport Tower in 1362. And, and that's not far off. I don't know about her family, but the Templars in the 14th century, the latter part of the 14th century, did build the Newport Tower. I don't know how he knew that or how she knew that. But what do you think of that? Well, it's so convergent. And the next question, of course, has to be, have you gone through church records uh, looking in that time frame for a wealthy family that may have done something like this? Well, actually, the oldest record we have of the Newport Towers and uh, the first governor of Rhode Island, Benedict Arnold's will, in 1677. Newport was founded in 1659. So the earliest record of the tower is in his will. He refers to it as my old stone mill. And, you know, people assume that because he's taking possession of it in that sentence that he built it. Well, he never says that he built it. And in fact, it was in ruins at that time. And we now know that it had already been there for, you know, close to 300 years by that time. Wow. So, um, well, 1677, yeah, almost 300 years. But um, so, you implied so there are the church records to look, to look for. Yeah, you implied in your discussion that if there's one, there has to be more than one. A network, kind of like the obelisk network. <clears throat> hint, hint. 
Okay, well, hold on, Richard. You just brought something up, and now I'm going to drop a bomb on you, okay? So, remember I told you about that egg-shaped keystone? Yes. Well, on the outside of the tower, in the same archway, back-to-back, is another keystone. And now, as a Freemason, I recognize it, you know, immediately as a Mark Master Mason's keystone. You know what a keystone looks like in a rounded arch? We Mm -hmm. see it in architecture all the time. Well... The Mark Master Mason's keystone has notches up in the top right and left corner of the keystone, and that is symbolic of a master master mason, practical mason, who was given the honor of placing the final keystone in the structure. Um, he was given that honor, so he would notch the, the top, indicating he was the, the master mason, and he would put it in the tower. But the problem is this. Those two keystones are not centered in the archway. They're actually two and a half degrees to the south. Now, no respecting medieval stonemason would do that, would they? Mm, No. Unless there was a reason. Of course. So that same year that I was, you know, documenting the illumination, I was also looking at that keystone, and I wrote about it for the first time. Apparently, I'm the first person to notice that. But I'm looking, I'm looking up at that keystone on the outside, knowing that it's tied with the egg on the inside, back to back. They're together. The only two keystones in the entire tower. And I'm looking at it, and then I said, what are you pointing to? And I turned and I looked to the west, and it hit me like that. And I knew instantly. So I went home. I went on my computer. I went on Google Earth, and I ran the calculations. And you're not going to believe it. If you draw a line from the center of the tower and extend it through those two keystones and then off into space, do you know where it goes? I'm afraid to ask. (laughs) Kensington, Minnesota. Oh, my God. God, <laughs> and I'm oh, not even, yeah, get that, man. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, but think about this. So if you Google my name, you'll see that there are people out there that are not big fans of mine. Why? I don't know. Really? Gosh, I hadn't noticed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I, I you know, we have the same club. Oh, but, but you know what, if you're, I guess if you're not getting criticized, you're not, you're not making a difference. You're not having an impact. But in any case, my point I want to make is some people have said to me, well, that's, that's BS. There's no way that you can have that long range alignment. And I said, okay, check it. And, And my question to you is, do you think that if there was these skeptics out there that would love to prove me wrong, do you think that after what is now going to be 13 years, or excuse me, 11 years since I published that in my book, that I would have heard something by now? One would think. You know what I've heard? I was was using a program similar to the geodetic program that's now in every smartphone because it's all GPS. Mm -hmm. But I was one of the first to actually try to use this global uh, alignment model to, to locate different sites thousands of miles apart. So I know you can get it down with the current data from GPS to within a matter of inches. Which begs the question, how did they do it back then? And I'll tell you what, Richard, 
um, I hate to break it to you, but the Templars were doing this long-range alignment stuff many hundreds of years before you and I were. Um, there's a really good book written by um, um, a brother and researcher by the name of Erlen Hoggison. He wrote the book with Henry Lincoln. It's called The Templar's Secret Island. And the secret island is in Bornholm, Denmark. But they have alignments in the round churches there, Templar churches that were built there. And they have a geometry that goes through these churches and extends out to a tiny island to the northeast called Cristanso. And there's a small round church there. And what I did on Google Earth was I extended that line from the main island of Bornholm and the two churches it lines up with there and then the third church at Cristanso. Do you know where that line goes to? Mm-hmm. Back it, to me. It goes to the island of Gotland, to the only oh. monastery on the island, which was Cistercian. Boom. How about that? It's it's all interlocking, and I'm not surprised. At at some level, I'm I'm shocked, but I'm not surprised. Do you understand the difference? Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. These models, if they mean anything, your work and my work, they a have to converge, and b the fact that the government is having you meet with interesting folks to talk about disclosure in this time frame, I don't think is an accident at all. I don't think hey, so. Let's get into that. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Scott Walter. We're discussing the real secrets beneath North America. When we return, we're going to talk about another couple of discoveries that Scott's made that unknowingly correlate beautifully with things that we've encountered. hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Photo episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com.
I'm here. I think Richard's gone, Keith. We need to get him back. So let's just pick up where we left off. Scott? Yeah. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Keith, can you hear Scott? Okay. Yeah, Yeah. let's just pick up where we left off. Okay. Well, you know, we were um, even talking about the Newport Tower and the alignments there and the long-range alignments. And, you know, one thing that just suddenly occurred to me um, now that we're, you know, kind of moving into this whole discussion about disclosure and the ET phenomena, is it possible, I mean, could it even be possible that the Templars had technology or the ability to make these long-range alignments over hundreds, if not over a thousand miles? Could they have had help, possibly? I didn't catch the first part of your question. Want to frame it again, please? Well, I, my question is, you know, these long-range alignments that we were talking about, um, it just dawned on me here as we're also talking about disclosure and about ETs and and this whole whole phenomena of, of humans interacting with aliens, if that's what's going on. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they just showed up here in the last decade they would have been around at the time of the Templars. Could they possibly have helped them with these incredible alignments? Well, the exact technology is, shall we say, debatable. One wonders whether they had that much interaction. Uh, my feeling is it's probably more like ancient lore and technology hidden in sacred texts. So they could, you know, like, did you re- ever read a book called Uriel's Machine? Oh, yes. That was... Uh, Remember their MacGuffin? That they found the source of the megalithic yard in the length of a pendulum? Oh, that was Alan, Alan Butler. You got it. You got it. Anyway, um, that idea of carrying constants with you, dependent only on the planet, if you have a code key, it seems perfectly reasonable, particularly if you have good star sites or maybe an even better technology. Well, you know, the, this, the thing about the megalithic yard, the megalithic yard, by the way, is, is also incorporated into the Newport Tower. And one of, the, one of the ways, you know, that egg I talked about, the Orphic egg that illuminates yes. the solstice, if you add the longest length dimension plus the longest width dimension, it's 2.722 feet. It's the oh, megalithic it's That's the megalithic true. yard. Yes, absolutely. And there's a lot more to that that I published in my latest book. Um, I mean, there's so many more levels to the tower, to the runestone than we have time to talk about right now. But I, I, I just want to, I, I just feel like we're, I, I, I want to go back and talk a little bit about this disclosure thing. And I'll tell you why I think it's important. And, how it sort of relates to the work that I've done because the whole story with the runestone and the Newport tower and the Templars coming to America is really important. Um, it, you know, it, it, it started with the crusades, the whole story that everybody was told or is, is, is led to believe it's, it's just BS. I mean, the, the crusades on one hand, uh, the Templars captured the Holy land, not for Christendom, but they did it to, to, to create a command center. So they had well, a the base. Knowledge base. 
It was ancient stored libraries. Well, it was it was to uh, you know establish a command center so they could go into the Middle Eastern region and round up a bunch of stuff, which included wealth, uh, <laughs> technology, documents, remains, and other forms of what people might call treasure. Right, and they were there for about seventy years or so, and then history will say they were defeated by the Muslims. That's not true. They were done. They collected the stuff that they wanted, and they left. They left. Okay, and because the I, whole... I have one for you. Okay. Which is all struck as okay. weird. And let's see how, how weird it is. Remember the numbers that are incorporated in the obelisk in Utah? Yes. 19.5, again and again, on the same one in Romania? Yeah. When did Pope, I think it was... What was his name? Not not Clement. That was Philip the Fair. Pope Clement V, yeah. The Pope before him, the one that was ousted in 1304. Is that what you're talking about? And then pope, The uh, one who, you know, began the Crusades. 1095. Pope, pope Pius the... Uh, yes, 1095 A.D. Oh, yeah, that was that. That's when it. No, listen, this is all part of a long range plan. Of course, these guys yeah. can't go down the hall to the John without doing a ritual. <laughs> no, but I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to paraphrase the whole story. And then once they routed up those treasures, they took them west to Western Europe, eventually to uh, the British Isles, and then ultimately over to North America with the long-range goal of establishing a new Jerusalem, a sanctuary, a new sanctuary where they could practice whatever faith they wanted, where people could live free from the tyranny of the monarchs of Europe, free from the persecution of the Roman Catholic Church, and eventually they handed that obligation on to our brethren, the founding fathers, who knew all about the Templars and the mission. They knew all about the tower and the Kensington runestone, and they finished the job. And they took those relics, they took the money, they used it to fund the revolution and create this country we call the United States of America. And that's what it was all about. And part of the mission that I'm on right now, Richard, by revealing all these historical truths and getting to the bottom of these artifacts and sites on this continent and who really did it is to remind people, part of what we're doing is to remind people, especially today, about the tenets upon which this nation was founded. And, 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 and I think we've forgotten that. A lot of people think this is a Christian country. No, it's not. Christianity happens to be, um, you know, have the most people following that faith. But you can be any religion. Remember, we also fought a war. It's called the revolution against a, against a monarchy, right? The king of England. And we also have freedom of religion because of the, the Roman Catholic Church. And I think we've forgotten a lot of that stuff here. But now what? Now the next step has just happened for me. It's already happened for you, clearly. And that is to look at this whole extraterrestrial question. And I, you said it yourself. We touched on it briefly. But they are here, apparently. Um, this, is, this is the message I'm clearly getting. And it's really beginning to add up uh, to me and they're worried about us. We're not doing our job here as humans on this planet. And 
I mean, come on. It's, it's, a, it's a train wreck, right? We and need a I, Well, I'm, we worried, need a I'm worried that we if need. we don't get our act together, that it's going to have dire consequences. We do need a paradigm shift. We need to have this discussion. And I think it's great that, you know, you're way down the track. I can see that. But we, we need to, <laughs> no, we need you're to get out up quick Because obviously you need to go to history and, and Travel Channel and whoever you've worked with. I'll send you a bunch of images uh, based on what our team has done. If you go to the website tonight, your, your guest page, right there is the 19.5 image. Mm-hmm. Um, this canyon is so special, but it needs to be protected as rapidly as possible in concert with the state of Utah who opened their damn mouths and let everybody know this thing existed. And then they made a mystery out of it. So they drove people who were very smart on the internet to figure out where this was by the time that the, the flight transponder for the chopper went off radar as the place where they landed to look at the monolith. Very sharp internet, you know, investigators. So the state of Utah deserves some kind of responsibility for preserving what I guarantee you when you get there, you are not going to believe what you're going to see. Well, um, I, you know, I, I think that's, that's an important place to take a look at, but I also think that there's, there's other, other things that I would, I would like to do. And I've, I've, you know, as far as the research that, that, that I would like to do is, is this is one area I think that would be important, but um, I think there's others. I would like to learn more about the, the Nimitz encounter. You've heard about that, right? Oh, yes. What do you think about that? Well, it's obviously not aliens. It's obviously some facet of the family. Think of it like an old mob family where you've got descendant rings of consigliaries and capos and whatever. And they all have access to this damn hyperdimensional technology. So what do they do? On their off Sundays, they go out and play with the Seventh Fleet. Wait a minute. So you're saying that what happened with the Nimitz is not extraterrestrial? You think it's... Yes, yes, it is extraterrestrial, but it's not alien. Oh. See, in our model, aliens do not have our DNA. They're not related. Family has our DNA scattered all over... The, the the closest you know hundred star systems used to live on Mars. Some of them came back a long time ago, and all of that history up to and including the style of the art in that canyon is Martian, as we're seeing on image after image after image from Curiosity of Gale Crater on Mars. Huh. Well, that's having that's... some catching up to do. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, that's, that's a new one on me. Um, well, I guess, I guess the, I, I think the most important thing that, that you're doing and, and that I, I feel like, you know, I, I should be doing too is helping to get the word out to everybody that we need to all kind of rethink what we're doing and start thinking about ways that we can change. What we're doing here is a people on this what planet. What would be the biggest, the biggest single impact of the confirmation, official confirmation, military, government, White House, you know, 10 Downing Street, France, whatever, that in fact the human race was being visited by 
family. What would be the biggest social reaction to that news? Well, I, I just, I, I would use myself as an example because this is relatively new for me, but it, it, the first thing is I think it's humbling. I think you, it forces you to take a step back and sort of rethink everything that you've ever thought. And just that, that notion alone is really important because I think sometimes people get so caught up in their own lives that they, they, they you know, it's not narcissism, but you're just so focused on yourself and, and doing what you need to do for your family, for, you know, your loved ones or whatever. But I think that, that realizing that there's something otherworldly going on, that there are other um, things out there besides us, forces people to take a step back and sort of rethink everything. And I think that's, that's a good thing because it's no different when you, when you become a Mason it's not going to work until you find some level of humility and realize that there's something out there that's greater than yourself. And only then when you realize a certain level of humility, are you truly ready to receive new information? And I'm using that as an example, because I think that's exactly what would happen if suddenly it was realized by everybody that every government around the world came out in, in unison and said, yep, this is what's going on here. Uh, we've known it for a long time. It's time for everybody around the world to know that. I think we are at that moment now. That's the message I'm getting. And, you know, I've been asked to help in that effort. And I'm going to help. I'm going to help. I'll do whatever I can. What would you, and Scott, what would you project would be the result of that message becoming official? Well, I, I, I know what I think it is. Oh, what would be the result? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think what the result should be is everybody on this planet should take that step back, reevaluate their place in this whole cosmos. I think the other thing that's really important that I think for you, people like you, I like to think I'm like that. A lot of our listeners realize that everybody on this planet is of the same species. All of exactly. our blood is red. Um, just because some people's skin color is different, they talk different. Um, you know, one of the things that I learned when I was young, I met different people. I played a lot of sports. I interacted with people from all over the place. And I found it amazing. I loved it because they were so interesting. It wasn't like the buddies I always hung around with. These people were different. They had a different culture, a different... And I, I wanted to learn about that. I thought it was great. And I think that's what everybody should do. Obviously, not everybody does. But and You and I are on the same wavelength on this because the reason I worked for 40 years to try to get people to understand that extraterrestrial archaeology is real and it was left by our own relatives, every human being on this planet tonight is much more closely related than our cousins out there. If nothing else, it should make us identify each other as the closest family we've got. And everything else is a huge unknown to be explored together. But if we're together, nothing is going to surprise us. Well, there's no question that we have to come together. That That is really the overarching method or uh, message. And 
I think that is, there's nothing more important than that. I mean, this is something we should be doing anyway, right? But well, that, yeah, all but humans yeah. tend to be a little slow sometimes. Well, well look, we all, we are, you and I, know we, that's not the way the world works right now. But we've got to change that. And I think that if, if we can start by, by everybody coming together, and what, what greater thing to come together on than to realize that we're not alone here. Um, I, I just, the word I keep saying to myself is, is it's humbling. And I think we can all use a little more humility in this world and, and tolerance. And maybe this is the impetus for that. Maybe that's what it's going to take for people to come together and start thinking about our planet, our environment and each other. Um, and then, and then maybe at that point, once we kind of, get our act together a little bit better, then maybe it's, then it'll be time to make the the next connection with them. Because quite frankly, I think that's what they're waiting for. I think they're waiting for us to do what we, we've been talking about the last five minutes. Then and only then will it be time to take the next step. What do you think? Remember what the, remember what the Masonic code is. You have to ask the question, to get the answer. You have to be curious. You're right. That's why we always talk about in Freemason, Freemasonry, seeking light, seeking yes. knowledge, learning. Okay, perfect segue. Over the last few, I don't know whether it's months or years, apart from your regular day job, which is knocking rocks together and figuring yeah. out paleographic time frames for artifacts, you were approached by person or persons associated with the U.S. government, specifically about the idea of UFO disclosure, and your first reaction was, what the hell do I know about that? (laughs) Pick it up there. Okay. Well, um, in fact, when I was contacted, um, like I said, in the last year and a half, I've, I've really been inundated with this subject matter. Um, and it wasn't necessarily of, of because I was interested in it. It came to me, and I took an interest. So I wasn't com- a complete neophyte, but um, one of the things I, I, one of the reasons I think is because they think that maybe I can help. And for whatever reasons, um, I take that very seriously. And and so I'm working together with with. Uh, this person and actually we've become very good friends. Um, he's come and stayed at, at, at our house for a few days and we've gotten to know each other. We got a chance to vet each other. And, um, I consider this person a friend. I feel like I've known him for a long time. And, um, I feel like, I think more important than anything is I trust this person and I think they trust me. And honestly, I, 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 I'm on board and I feel like there is no more important work that I could ever do than what we're doing right now. You and I, Richard, right now, what we're doing is the most important work because the people that are listening to this program are the ones that need to hear this. They need to think about it. And I know it's going to hit them in a good place. There's nobody out there that isn't gonna, that's gonna argue that what we're talking about right now, people coming together, 
people taking a step back, that that's not a good idea. It is a good idea. Everybody knows that things are not working the way they should right now on this planet. And and nobody's going to fix it for us. They're not going to fix it for us. We have to figure it out ourselves. And we're smart enough. My gosh. We've, we're an incredible species when we put our minds to it. Well, look at what we've done on this vaccine, which everybody said was impossible. Well, by the traditional techniques of vaccine creation, it was. But when you bring it up into the 21st century, it's amazing what you can get if you pour an unlimited amount of money and resolve into solving a technical problem. Right. <laughs> well, you're right. And and there's 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 many other examples of that. But I think the moment is now. I think it's time for humanity to... Uh, to rise up. And it's not because there's a threat that, you know, an existential threat, like, you know, I mean, the whole idea that the extraterrestrials want to want to kill us or take over the earth. Look, if they wanted to do that, they would have done it. Right. So obviously that's not what they're trying to do. And well, I think, wait, 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 hang on, hang on. What if there's more than one group of extraterrestrials? Well, going all the way back in the Sumerian text, we have Enki and Enlil, right? And we have the story of a brotherly confrontation, an aggression, a competition between two brothers. And the ultimate expression of that was one of the brothers tried to kill all the other beings that the other brother had carefully fostered, created, nurtured, etc. So if we're at the hands of madmen, because they're human, and they would then for have certain human characteristics like megalomania, like dictatorship, like fascism, like just name your ism. Is it a coincidence that at the same time that we have the most startling pandemic attacking the world, which my research and Dr. Wickrama Singh says came from outer space, did not originate here. China was a target, not the progenitors. Against that backdrop, You've had a president for four years wanting to create a space force against whom? And then you have people in the Pentagon leaking all kinds of stuff saying that the the, uh, UFOs are manned by intelligent beings, and some of them are, how should we say, related. All this is happening simultaneously, and I don't think it's an accident. It it certainly isn't an accident, in my opinion. I I learned a long time ago that, you know, none of this is coincidence. And, you know, it started with looking at the runestone and then the Templars. And now here we are with the ET phenomena. And none of this is, is coincidence. None of this is an accident. And because of that fact, that is why... Right now, more than ever, we don't have time to wait. We have to get our act together. And it starts by just taking a step back. You know what? A wise man once said this to me. You never learn anything when you're talking. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, think, I think the lesson there is that people have to listen and learn and keep their mouth shut and that's where it starts, and let's let's. We let's... need something that will become a common experience again. Our problem, and it's primarily because of Zuckerberg and Twitter and all that, we have fractionated into separate 
factions that are not sharing shared experience. No wonder we can't agree on reality. Yeah. Well, and, okay, I want to ask you, we got about three minutes till the bottom okay. of the hour. Okay. I want to ask you about your guy, your contact. Yeah. And we can pick it up after after the the turn of the hour. Did he identify himself as which agency? Did he show you credentials? If you guys have gotten to be good friends and he's staying over at your house, that's that's saying that you trust him. Why do you trust him? Well, yes, he did show me the credentials. Um, he answered all my questions to my satisfaction. He showed me identification. Um, he gave me some stuff. And, you know, look, I mean, one of the things I did on America on Earth is I had guests on every show. And we would do these investigations, and I would talk to people, right? I mean, we all talk to people. And, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm the sharpest guy that ever walked the earth, but I don't think I'm the dumbest guy either. But I, you get, a, you get a, a vibe when you talk to somebody. And you can tell when somebody's BSing you, and you can tell when somebody's being truthful. And I can tell you that th there was a time I interviewed a guy on the show who was talking about a Bigfoot encounter. And quite frankly, at the time when I did that episode, I didn't even really want to do a Bigfoot episode. I wanted to do rock stuff. But I said, okay, let's do it. And, and this guy was telling me the story. And I was skeptical about the topic at the time. But I will tell you this. That guy was like almost weeping when he was telling me the story because it was so emotional. And what it, what it said to me is, I believed that this guy believed that what he saw was true. It's not the same as I believe what he saw is true. I believe that he believed what he saw was true. And it probably was. But the point I'm trying to make is you can tell when someone is not telling you the truth most of the time. At least I feel that way. And this contact, I spent a lot of time with him. We drank bourbon. And, um, you know, I, this guy has had a lot of, we talked about our personal lives. And, um, you know, I've had struggles in my past. I lost my father. He's had some personal struggles. And I really felt that he isn't just doing this because he's been given orders. He has been given orders, but he believes in what he's doing. He wants to see this be successful. Okay, well, I'll it there. Okay. At the top of the hour. My, my guest this morning is Scott Walter. We're involved in a deeply riveting conversation. Why is a guy who's specializing in ancient artifacts and deep time and demonstrating that Columbus was not first, why should he suddenly be caught up in ufology and disclosure? We'll find out in the next half hour. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thank you. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. people that he could reach out to. And one of the things that he said was um, he felt I was credible that, um, that uh, people would trust what I would say to be what I believe to be the truth and that I would do my due diligence before I would say something. And, and that's what I, that's what I try to do. And I was, very encouraged. So this guy approached you to be part specifically of a formal disclosure process where your credibility and your forensic scientific background are essential to communicating the message, right? I guess I would like to believe that to be the case, and I, I, I think he would probably agree with that, yeah. Has anybody proposed any formal programming along these lines? I mean, this so reminds me of Brookings, doesn't it? You ever read the Brookings document? No. Oh, you need to read Brookings. Hey, remember, I'm on the other side of Midnight uh, <laughs> website under the Enterprise Mission. Or you can Google um, um, Brookings document Enterprise, and it will take you to it. Yeah. It's exactly what Brookings recommended. Exactly. 50 well, years ago. Well, here's can I can I read something that he sent to me a long time ago? Because sure. I, I, I was, you know, it's it's funny. You, you you asked him, you asked me why why do, you know why did he approach me? And so I said, okay, well, let me ask you a question. If someone asks me about you, what do I tell them? You know. Um, and so here's what he gave. He said he's a member. Uh, of the intelligence community working for the Department of Defense. Uh, he's also working as an advisor to and associate of both the various government entities. 
as well as the public-facing organizations, journalists, documentary filmmakers, and whistleblowers who continue to make the news. Some of the individuals he's worked with are people like James Fox. I don't know all these people, but you mm-hmm. probably know James Fox, Commander David Fravor, Jacques Vallée, and Dr. Stephen Greer. To the Stars mm. Academy, just to name a few. Now, you're familiar with these people and the, the, to the Stars Academy? All of them, yes, yes. Okay. Let me just finish this here. Um, he's concerned with normalizing the UAP slash ET topic and restructuring the old paradigm of painfully compartmental, compartmented secrecy into a more open, equitable, and inclusive dialogue. And most importantly, a dialogue that includes the public um, and oversight from our elected uh, officials. He's, he's passionate, and I can speak to this, about the ongoing slow but steady process of bringing disclosure to the masses in, in a responsible manner. And, I, and I'll tell you, while we were having a couple of bourbons, you know, he relayed to me how frustrating this job can be when you're dealing with the public that sometimes is, is <laughs> ADD. They just, you know, and he says, I don't, I don't know oh, if we're going to be able to do this. In- in defense of human beings, they have been deliberately turned into ADD dysfunctionals by this thing called social media. It's the most infernal, satanic device to undercut every facet of civilized society you can imagine. Well, I, I, I certainly agree with that to, on one hand, but on the other hand, it's, it can be amazingly powerful and good when used in that manner. In the right hands. Right, Who is teaching anybody on the internet how to use the internet? Nobody. There's no classes we can attend, is there? You just just get on and, and, uh, and get after it, right? Yeah, but you know the star system abounds. It's gotta be a Hollywood person. It's gotta be someone of, let's say, Sagan stature. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't cut it. Um, it's got to be someone who will rivet our attention. Foregoing that, maybe the powers that be need to create some news background like official hearings on Capitol Hill when the new administration takes office that will be the <clears throat> subject of doesn't bring us all together. Nothing will. Well, exactly. Yep. Yeah, but I, you know what? That's why I, I said at the very beginning, I think that once this news gets out, and I'm not exactly sure what that signature moment, you know, that defining moment when the world goes, oh. <laughs> but I think, I think what it's going to do is it's going to get people's attention. It's going to force them to take a step backwards and sort of rethink everything they thought they knew. And quite frankly, that is exactly what we need as a species. And, Wait till you, know, you see what's in that canyon. Okay. <laughs> it's going to blow your mind. And it's going to connect all kinds of dots. Let me ask a bigger question. Okay. You got into this looking at ancient history through geological prisms, through the Kensington Stone. What has been the second most intractable and then satisfying mystery that you use these tools to solve? Oh, man. 
Well, you know, there have I, I have to say there have been some pretty profound moments, but I, I got to say one of the most rewarding experiences I ever had, and this is terrible with me to say this, but um, it got it gave me an opportunity to pack it up the Smithsonian Institution's rear end. And I, and I can't say it any, any, any other way than that. You mean you ever, to tell me you discovered that they <clears throat> don't tell the truth all the time? Stop it, Richard. How could you say such a thing? Because I have We're talking about our nation's museum, right? <laughs> yeah, with a political agenda. What a bunch of anyway. – they're a bunch of pack of liars. And yeah, I don't yeah. – I, I don't care what they think about it, but but no. The, have you ever heard of uh, the Bat Creek Stone? Yes. Okay. So. And I'm trying to get uh, uh, what's his name on the show. If you know him, tell him I really want to have him come on. I'll invite you back that night boom. because it's, it's it's his name is uh, uh, De Palma. He's a cousin of Dr. Bruce De Palma who did all this cutting-edge research into creating physical technology around the torsion field before he mysteriously died in New Zealand many years ago. What's that got to do with the Bad Creek Stone? Because there's a fossil complex located not far away, which is the secret of how the dinosaurs died. And dinosaurs, and that story, is a big factor in the Utah Canyon. Oh, okay. Uh, it gets to be so ancient so quickly. Well, okay. We took a hard left turn. I was on the Bat Creek Stone. I was ready to go on a roll, and now we're back to the canyon again. But okay, I talk I, about the Bat Creek Stone, okay? <laughs> I'm just giving you crap. Well, no, the, the, the back, you know, you know, you asked me what was, what I thought was one of the most profound things I'd ever worked on. The Kinsey and the Runestone would be number one, but probably number two is Bat Creek, which is a small inscribed stone that was found in a burial mound, uh, a Cherokee burial mound in Tennessee back in 1889, when the Smithsonian Institution had a field agent by the name of John Emmert, who did the Bat Creek excavation. And in mound number three, he found nine decomposing skeletons, seven in the north part aligned shoulder to shoulder with their heads to the north. And then there were two more in the southwestern uh, uh, part of the mound, one with its head to the north and one with its head facing south. Under the skull of that one body with its head to the south was a sacred birch bark bundle uh, placed behind the head. And in there was a, uh, a red ochre stone for face paint. There was a bone antler. It was an antler awl for punching holes in leather. There were two copper bracelets and a small inscribed stone, which was an originally uh, interpreted to be Paleo-Cherokee text. Well, that wasn't a threat to the narrative. So they uh, published the... Uh, you know, published the information about the dig and they put the artifacts in, in a box and they put it in the archives and they forgot about it. Well, in 1964, a Chicago patent attorney by the name of Henrietta Mertz was at the Smithsonian and she pulled out the Bat Creek box and she pulled out this small inscribed stone and she 
flipped it around and recognized what she thought were some Phoenician characters. She took it to one of the top Semitic scholars in the world at that time, uh, a guy by the name of Cyrus Gordon, who published a paper and he said, this inscription isn't Paleo-Cherokee, it's Paleo-Hebrew. Oh my gosh. First century Paleo-Hebrew. Well, guess what? That was in 1970. So what do you think the Smithsonian Institution, our nation's museum's first reaction was when this guy is one of the top Semitic scholars in the world? What do you think they said when they heard that? Oh, what they said was, well, well, wait a minute. Um, It's a hoax. And our guy, John Emmert, who's probably been dead at that point for about 80 years, um, he did it. He did it, right? (laughs) They threw him under the bus. They didn't bother to investigate the question. They didn't look into it. They just couldn't have it. And what happened was they screwed it up at the, at, at the, from the get-go because they didn't recognize what they had found, right? So to make a long story short, the, bra- the, the copper bracelets turned out to be brass. I thought oh, the indigenous wow. people didn't, didn't practice metallurgy. Um, and the bone, the the antler all was uh, C14 test dated, and the dates came back in the early 1980s, 60 to 600 AD, plus or minus wow. a couple hundred years. The only thing that had not been studied scientifically was the Bat Creek Stone. Enter Scott Walter. So I made, <laughs> so I made a request to the Smithsonian Institution, knowing full well they would tell me to pound sand, right? Because I'm the guy that worked on the Kensington Runestone. So I'm persona non grata with them. And I got exactly the answer that I thought I would get, go pound sand. So what I decided to do was I went to the Cherokee Indians. And I, ah. I sat down and I talked to the elders um, through the, through the uh, great, gracious assistance of a good friend of mine, Leslie Kalin, whose father was one of the senior elders. And anyway, I sat down with him and I explained. The wait, wait, wait. You don't mean the Boston reporter, do you? No, 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 no. Okay. All right. No. Go ahead. Le- Leslie is a woman. Anyway. Yeah, well, this is a woman too. She's big. Oh, okay. Okay. No, no, no. I, she's not a reporter. <laughs> okay. Right. okay. So, so she set up this meeting and I, I met with the elders and I told them the story and I said, would you support me? and help me get this stone because I think it's important. And they said, absolutely, Scott. And I said, well, what if, what if they don't give it to us? He said, oh, they'll give it to us. He said, if they don't, he said, we will demand that they return every artifact they took out of any mound ever. And under said, the Clinton administration, <laughs> there was a formal law enacted that right. allowed repatriation of artifacts to native American lands. Right. So this right. clearly would fall under that jurisdiction. And he just looked at me and he said, they don't want that. And I <laughs> said, and I said, great. So they put in the request and the Smithsonian acquiesced. However, they did not send the stone to me like the runestone was brought to my lab. I had right. to go to Tennessee to do the analysis. And Anyway, make a long story short, I did the analysis. I used their scanning electron microscope. I brought my own uh, reflected and 3D imaging microscopic equipment, and I did my analysis. 
And I wrote a long report and I reported it to the Museum of the Cherokee Indian, to the tribe. And I said that this stone was authentic. Okay. And let's stop the there. First, okay. Hang on, but hang on. There's some fallout people I want to tell you about. Well, well, let me ask this question then, because most people, again, we're talking magic. Tell them what you do with these techniques to discard fake copies from real ancient artifacts. What are you looking for? What does the science tell you, which is ultimately irrefutable? Well, first and foremost, anytime we do an analysis on artifacts like this, we need to get proper background information. For example, first thing I need to do, know is what kind of rock is it? Um, and then I will look very carefully at the inscription. But even before I get too far into that, I also need to know the provenance of that artifact. Where did it come from? What is the history that we know of? Was it found, you know, buried in the ground? Was it, you know, inside of a building? Was it on display in a museum? I need to know the context of where it's been so I can understand the weathering that I see on the artifact together with the geology and everything else. So I have to have a lot of good background information. Some of it I need to get from other sources. A lot of it I can generate on my own by doing the analysis. And mm -hmm. in any investigation, we always start by looking at the large scale features and work small down to the tiny, you know, the small microscopic features. And that's what I did. I used my reflected mi light microscope. I used my 3D um, imaging microscope to, to look at the actual, uh, you know, uh, three-dimensional makeup of the carved grooves and the weathering features and the rock itself. And then I did some scanning electron microscopy to do some elemental analysis of both the rock and the weathering features. And so I was able to say that this thing the weathering of this inscription was consistent with being in a wet burial mound for at least a thousand years. And so this thing was not created by John Emmert. So anyway, here's what happened. So I published this report. The Smithsonian got the report. And for the first time ever, they came out with an official opinion about the stone. And they went on my blog site and officially responded. You can pull it up, Bad Creekstone, you can see it. There's an exchange and basically said, oh no, you, you know, you're full of crap. It's a fake. And our guy, John Emmert, created it. So I wrote back to them and I said, oh, okay, well, you guys better be very careful because you are claiming that some guy that's not here to defend himself created this hoax, right? Well, you might recall, Smithsonian, that this guy also did 200 other digs for you guys. <laughs> so now, you, if you're going to call this one into question, you call 200 other digs in, into question. Are you ready to go there? So then you know what the response was? They came back and they said, it's a fake, but they took John Emmert's name out of it. How's that for a bunch of jack wagons? Yeah, I think there's a technical term. <clears throat> Starts with a weenie. <laughs> uh, can I can I interrupt for a second? Yeah, sure. Uh, Rich, we have two callers, uh, James and Michael, that are on hold for a while. Um, are you going to take callers in the last half hour? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, John, uh, Scott, did you reach a, a stopping point? Because we have some callers. Yeah, no, oh, no, he jumped in perfect. I'm done. I think I've made my Excellent. point. Okay. Um, Keith, you'd like to take one of the callers? 
Yeah. By all means. Okay. I'm going to bring up James. All right. Get James in. Okay, James. Yeah, uh, you're on the air. Yeah. Can you hear me? James? Yeah. Can you hear me? You have a question for Scott? Yes. Uh, well, I was just going to mention some. I have a comment on like the the entire thing that's been said so far, like the whole show. Um, oh, I have wow. some of my own ideas. Yeah, I have some of my own ideas about the monoliths and whatnot, and I I think they're related to a lot of things that you talk about. And uh, you know, it's very very interesting what's happening. Like you say that the replication of this whole new consciousness that's coming about because of this is like taking place right now, like on this show and in other ways. So I think that, you know, we're going to have some developments out of this, like uh, they're going to maybe reveal their presence. And in addition to that, we're going to have some technological advances probably because of the results of that. Like maybe we'll have the quantum gravity, which is something that we've been looking for for a long time. And uh, I would also say that like Celtic tetrahedra and those things are related, but you know, you know that. So, um, and they're also here among Scott, us, which is all. Yeah, go ahead. Scott, do you have something specific what? for Scott? Oh, um, yeah, I also wanted to mention that um, my wife has actually been to America's Stonehenge, and she has a lot of ideas about it. And she's actually been in contact with Scott before about the hooked X, which she had some interesting yeah. evidence for before it was vandalized. Cool. Well, yeah. Um... Well, first of all, it seems to me like, you know, you're kind of tracking here with the idea that, you know, we all have to come together and that, you know, if if this continues on the road, it is that it's definitely, um, you know, we're not the only ones here that we we all have to get our act together. And you seem to be picking up on that vibe. So that's great. Um, America Stonehenge is an amazing place. You know, getting back to this whole controversial, you know, issue we had with the Smithsonian, the Back Creek Stone, and God, you talk about acting like petulant children. Um, why, why aren't, why aren't, you know, archaeologists going up to America Stonehenge and spending time at this incredible place? My God, they could make their careers. Well, they're too damn scared, to, you know, uh, uh, because they've been institutionally programmed that they can't go into these areas and investigate them. And to me, it's like, what the hell's the matter with you guys? <laughs> you know, but I, I have talked right. to people who were, when they were studying in college, they were told that if you study the Kensington Runestone or any of these other artifacts, you will not get a job in this industry. They will be blackballed forever. Who does that? I mean, are you kidding me? But this is what's going on. And it's insane. And, and to me, if I was a, a young archaeology student and I was just coming out, I would go up to Dennis Stone, who owns, you know, the property at America Stonehenge. I'd be on my knees begging him to let me study this site because you could make your whole career. That place is just waiting for people to go up there, take it seriously, and figure the damn thing out. It's incredible. And it just makes me crazy when I think about it. But I, you know, I... I'm not going to beat my head against the wall anymore. I'm going to say, look, either you, if you don't take the opportunity, I'll do it. And that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. It's like, I'm glad these, 
people left it for me to, to work on these things. I'm grateful. You know, it's very curious because our careers are kind of paralleled. When I was at CBS, yeah. CBS News working with Cronkite, I discovered the awesome power to do television science by harnessing the power of a network. And I've yeah. done that my entire career. It seems to me if the institutions, the academic institutions that should be in charge of figuring this stuff out are not going to do it, call on other resources like television to step in because it's a hell of a story. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it's connected now to a series of real-world events that I think are going to provide an unending source of material. I mean, look at how long the fellows behind the uh, 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 island there north of Nova Scotia um, pine. Oh, the, the curse! The curse! Oh, good God! <laughs> oh, the curse of Oak Island. Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. thank you, James, for uh, participating. Uh, Richard, are we going to time for taking Michael, or we're going to wait for after the break? Uh, let's wait till after the break, okay? Okay, thank so, you. So, Scott, what do we want to fill with? Thank you. Um, you have a whole listing of interesting things here. The Bat Creek's on one of them. We've got the Cremona document, the Sinclair Wymus journals, Means and journal. the Albert yeah. Pike letters. Yeah. Uh, do a setup before the break and tease us with what you're going to talk about when we come back. Oh, my gosh. Well, um, I think, you know what I, I think would be fun, I don't get a chance to talk about very often, are the uh, – um, well, let's talk about the Cremona document. That That's something I'm – right in the middle of right now that that one is is a lot of fun so let's talk about that okay you want to talk now well yeah we, we've got oh, I thought we're going into break. the hour sorry. i'm sorry no uh well the cremona document oh god this story is so crazy um i it started for me 14 years ago i was at a conference out in rhode island as a matter of fact and a couple of friends of mine um well, a, a, a friend of mine, uh, Zena Helper, um, who was uh, a researcher, she passed away a couple, three years ago. Uh, wonderful gal, just really passionate. And, and she came up to me and she said, Scott, I, I want you to meet my friend Don Rue here, and he's got something he wants to show you. Let's roll out. We're going to my room. So we went to her room, and he pulled out this brass disc, and it was shaped just like a hockey puck, except it was open on the top. And inside were these little metal inserts. And, and they wanted me to look at it. So I looked very carefully at it. And I saw some etchings on the outside of it, uh, uh, symbols that I didn't recognize. Well, it turns out that this brass seal was actually a navigation device. And it was found along the Hudson River inside of a box that ended up in the water. And Don found it. And this is something that he gave to a friend of his that led him on this incredible journey that took him to Italy where he bought a document called the Cremona document. And it's called the Cremona document because it spent a number of centuries in a Cistercian monastery in Cremona. Oh, it the Cistercians again. Ah, you see where we're going here? <laughs> yep, 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 go ahead. Anyway, um, so this guy yeah, is 45 was, seconds, okay? Yeah, his name was Dr. Bill Jackson, and he spent the next 25 years of his life vetting the document, 
convincing himself the document was true, and then going out into the mountains to find something called the Temple of the Goddess, where scrolls had been hidden in the first century, that the Templars in the 12th century made a pilgrimage over to North America to recover and bring back to Europe. That's the essence of the story. I'll fill you in, I'll fill you in with the rest of the details on the other side. Oh, my gosh. All right there, everyone. My guest the site t- tonight is Scott Walter, um, host of America Unearthed. And if I know anything about how this works, he may be the host of a new series investigating some really interesting things that bring various elements of disclosure together. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. everyone on this Sunday night grading into uh, actually Saturday night grading into Sunday morning welcome back my guest this morning is Scott Walter and we are we're launching a mission remember part of this program is something called the enterprise mission to boldly go where someone has gone before Scott are you up for that I am I am and you know what Richard something occurred to me we got too much stuff to talk about, but one one thing I just wanted to touch on, because you have three pictures of them here, four pictures, are the alien artifacts, um, 
Do we have time on that, or do you want to do the Cremona document? No, by all means. No, no, no. Take us wherever you want. Yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about these a little bit because, you know, we did an episode in season four about these alien artifacts, which, um, uh, you know, reportedly have been discovered primarily in Mexico um, that have been dug out of the ground that have depictions of aliens, alien craft, and some of them get into some pretty high-level tech, what appears to be technological um, machines doing all kinds of things and planets and interactions. Are you familiar with these artifacts? Do you know what I'm talking about? Actually, the only artifacts I know in that part of the world that are highly suspect are something called the Cabrilla Stones that a colleague of mine proved pretty convincingly were probably done at home. But I haven't seen these. Okay. So start at the beginning. Well, okay. Well, several years ago, I was at a conference that I was speaking at, um, it was called the Paradigm Symposium. And anyway, I came in there, I was talking about the runestone and the Templars and the stuff that, you know, I usually talk about. And I walked by this table and this guy had these, it was full of these stone car, you know, stones with carvings on them. And I picked them up and I looked at them. I'm like, Jesus, they got almond eyes and big heads. I go, these are aliens. And, spaceships and all this stuff but the artwork was really beautiful and there was just something about them that that captivated me and I thought to myself I want to buy some of these and I talked to the guy and you know he started off with a price and then I said well what if I get a few of them you know next thing I know I'm I'm, I you know I had a pile of these things and I (laughs) I I got I got a really good price but hey I bought them with the idea that, you know, I just, it's beautiful artwork. And if I ever want to get rid of them, I know I can get my money back. Right. And the other reason why I wanted to buy them is because I thought that I might be able to do some testing on them. And in some cases, destructive testing. And I sure am not going to do that with anybody else's artifacts. So I bought them, I took them home and I started to look at them very carefully. And the long and the short of it is I ended up meeting somebody else through this person that had an artifact. It was actually a small pipe. And he contacted me and he said, Scott, can you do some testing on this pipe? I said, well, sure. Let me look at it and I'll see what I can do. So I'm looking at this pipe and it's not very big. And I look inside the bowl and I put it under the microscope and I could see there was dirt. All these things have dirt on them, right? And I could see, I could see, uh, you know, a layer of dirt in the bowl, but I could also see underneath that there was a dark layer of um, resin. Oh, it, some kind of organics. It was organic, and it looked like it was like somebody had been smoking on it. So that's what I said. And to make a long story short, I sent it off to a, a laboratory, who will remain nameless. <laughs> and what happened was I contacted these people because I I regularly send C14 testing into them. And I said, here's what I've got. How do you want me to collect the sample without having contamination from the sediment? They said, tell you what, Scott, just send us the pipe. We'll collect the sample and we'll do the test. And I wow. said, okay. I said, okay, great. So I sent them the piece. About three weeks later, I get a call and they said, Scott, can you pay us right away for that? 
before I get the results, right? And I'm like, okay. Well, he'd never done that before, right? Right. And then I gave my credit card. And then the last thing he said to me is, I'm going to send you an email with the test results. Don't ever send anything like this to us again. Oh, great. And I'm like, okay. So I got the email. I What's that? How deep is this damn conspiracy? It's like they bought or terrorized everybody. I'm not, I, I don't know. To be quite frank with you, I don't think they're part of a conspir- uh, conspiracy. I think they were just freaked out. And why are they scientists? They ought to become plumbers. That's a hell of a good question. And Richard, I don't know the answer to that, but all I, I can tell you is a reliable, non seasonal profession. You meet nice people. You get to go into strange houses. You know, if you have no courage, they should not be calling themselves academics or scientists. I don't even think it takes courage to run a C-14 test. It's just a simple damn test. Here's the organics. Run the test. Here's the result. What's the problem? <laughs> I mean, is your science it's good? obvious they bought into a model. <clears throat> when they find deviations, it screws their, their life up. So let me ask you the question. What do you think the, the date was I got back? Okay. Uh, a pipe, obviously, for smoking, probably uh, something interesting, ceremonial. Uh, where where was it found again? In Mexico somewhere. I don't know exactly where. Mexico, okay. I'd say it's between twelve and 30,000 years. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Fifty six, fifty four hundred years. Be, be I love it. Uh, fifty four hundred. And of course, I got that test result. I'm like, what? This is insane. Well, since that time, I've purchased a few more artifacts, specifically artifacts that have inserts. In other words, little adornments that have been attached to the main artifact. Oh, which can which can attract and hold a treatise. Well, which is attached with some type of adhesive. Oh, so it's I, not it's carved as one piece. Well, a lot of them are, but some of them are, are composites, and some of them are just a main piece that have adornments that have been glued onto them. Which brings oh. to mind the Utah monolith, because you know how they did it, right? Well, they they riveted it together. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm I'm talking about how they buried it in the in the sandstone under the canyon floor. They with a oh. cement saw they cut three grooves precisely at the same angle as the. Oh, I see, I see. So they put they lowered it into the grooves and they attached it with an epoxy, which of course would spread through the channels, the micro channels in the sandstone, oh, and provide one hell of a support. I mean, it it took the weight of Guys sitting on top of it. You saw pictures. Oh yeah, very well done. Well, if they if they cut the grooves in there and they slid it in like putting a you know a knife into a sleeve or something, I could see where that would be really sturdy. But no, one of the close up camera guys actually took a took a smartphone and narrated his investigation with a penknife, and he said there's grooves and then there's epoxy at the bottom. I saw that. I saw that video. Uh, yeah. I, I hate to interrupt, guys, but we still have two callers. Uh, we oh, have Michael oh, oh. holding on and Ron Gerbon. You've got to be a little more persistent. Michael, Michael, welcome to the other side of midnight. 
What's your question for Scott? We're very informal hold, around hold, here. Hold on, I've got to bring him on. Hello. Okay. Yeah, I'm a. Uh, thank you. I'm, I am. I'm a truck driver out here, and, and I've been noticing lately that there's been a uh, this Utah monolith sits on the 38 parallel. And what is uh, the significance with the the obelisk in in Washington D.C., the St. Louis Arch, and the arches in Utah, and that monolith all kind of lines up with with the uh, the half dome rock in in uh, California? Is that some type of uh, ancient kind of uh, system? That's our understanding because the the mean latitude of all those structures you mentioned is 19.5 yes. degrees times two. Washington was created at 39 degrees by design by Lafayette and Washington as part of ancient Masonic lore. Mm. Yeah. Rabbit hole, Scott, is infinite. <laughs> infinite. I, I'm yeah. Sure. Well aware, I'm well aware. <laughs> yeah. So okay, Michael, I, I I drive a I drive a I drive a truck and I and I and I stay in the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Well, I hope you enjoy the program. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. So we have Ron Gerbron. Oh, Ron! By all means, bring him on. All right, Ron, you're on. Oh, hello, Richard. Hello, Richard. And I see you, Scott. Welcome. Yeah, having a lot of fun. This is okay, one of my favorite topics. Fizzle. I want some synapses to, to burn. You're making connections. What do you come up with? Me? Yeah. You? Yeah. Oh, okay. Three hours. I'm oh. sorry. The, the, the phone got a little overwhelmed for a second, so I wasn't sure whether you were talking to me or Scott. Uh, okay, it's almost, if I'm on, I, I had one thing that goes back to the basic disclosure thing. I mean, there's been a lot of fuss last, people have noticed the last couple of days that remark out of uh, that Israeli office that the aliens are here, but they don't think we're ready for them yet. Yeah, we've talked about that earlier tonight. Yeah, I know. I was listening. And I was saying, the thing is, I don't think it's up to them. By them, I mean the uh, this business that the aliens don't think we're ready. I don't think it's that well organized. I think that the the idea of contact is that for some time, one of those groups of externals, let's call it, uh, has felt, oh, this is fine. These people can come by. We can tell the we can tell them who we are and that we're here and where we're from and various other things. You know, we can be friends and. Uh, but they're not the ones that are tied in with various government projects where they're doing this and doing that and supposedly going to get one thing in return for another. And, but it all has to be done very quietly, you know. Uh, I think that's the side that's making up stuff like, oh, humanity isn't ready for this yet. Because, I mean, everybody's, a, everybody's aware of this of it and it's just the uh i think after 20 some years we're damn well going to be ready scott let me interrupt and ask you a key question yeah yeah your government guy who you know from the bona fides is real yeah is he proposing offering 
the magic elixir of real research, which is money? Well, you know, um, it, it depends on, I mean, this, this whole relationship and this whole plan, I mean, there's, there's, there is, there is a, a, an overarching plan. I think we've talked about what that is, but exactly how to go about it is still up in the air. We're still trying to figure out what is the best approach. One of the ways is, uh, through documentary films and, um, to make documentaries, it requires money. So we really have not talked much about the money question, but you know, to get anything done does require funds. And well, yeah, so it's about time you took this up with him, and you're going to simultaneously go to travel, right? Where do you stand with history? You mean with the networks? Yeah. Well, I can certainly reach out to the networks with something that I think is worthwhile. Um, Absolutely. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to do anything about it. Um, remember, there, well, there, there, there would be if we go on the air and say they're looking at this proposal, they might like to have a few audience members tell them what they ought to be doing. Well, all I can tell you is it's a business. They care about money. They're about making money. And there's profits not a dirty word. Which means they need – we used to say you would need seats and chairs. Now right. you need eyeballs on Zoom. Right, right. Well, I, I think that this is a topic that's obviously interesting to a lot of people. And I mean, imagine that you set it up so that you go to the canyon and you do your initial exploration on live television via satellite, the Internet. I mean, there's no way to get away from any place on Earth now that doesn't have a signal. And you literally expose on live television all the context of the monolith that the story's never covered. It was like they were totally blind. Well, you remember when you have a news cycle, people have a very short attention span. And when you start talking about numbers and, and geometry and mathematics, people kind of zone out. So you have to find a way to keep it it's interesting. It's called art. The art is stunningly overwhelming. I'm going to start overloading your inbox by sending you a parade of images, including the image that is the companion to the one that Robin found at Coral Castle. It's obvious who's doing this. I'm just wondering if you maybe have a glimmer now who might be behind this? Um, I have my own thoughts about that. And um, Do you wish to share? <laughs> well, I, I, You're I, on worldwide radio. Come on. All Let's right. Well, there's, there's, listening. I, I guess I would say that there's a, my, my best guess is that the initial, the one that was in Utah and some of the others where are probably um, an understanding between a group of countries and what organization exactly is implementing it. Maybe the CIA knows. I, 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 I and, think, and, I think, and who, I think might, who might that ancient venerable institution I think I just said it. <laughs> Would it be the Masons? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's, I, it's steamboat I, time. I, I well, I'm well. Look, they're the Hiram. Hiram. They are everywhere. They're everywhere. Um, they work for the government. They work for your local law enforcement. They well, they're everywhere. They're Absolutely, everywhere. They're, they're like air. They permeated every institution we think of 
has got Masons involved at some level. Ron, you said something. I didn't quite catch it. Oh, I was just handing Hiram a biff in the background. Sorry, I was trying to. Uh, are, are you a traveling sir? Uh, my father, my father was a Mason. Okay, not you though. Yeah. Um, no, I all I and all I inherited was the uh, thirty-three degree uh, little plaque. <laughs> okay. Got this round, got this round sunburst plaque. That's, uh, but that has nothing to do with me. Although I have studied them. No, I'm, no, I'm not giving. I'm not giving you a hard time. Believe me. Far no, from, no, no, no. That's um, right. I just wondered if you were a Mason uh, yourself, um, and and you know if you haven't looked into it, it, might be something you you know if you come from a Masonic tradition, which you do, might be something you should take a look at. Oh, everybody approaches me and then they run away screaming. Uh, the uh, actually, I was going to mention Tom DeLong and his group, the um, To the Stars Academy. Sounds like such a mm-hmm. great idea, and he's a great guy, but. Uh, I was a, I guess I could call it approached by a couple of his people. And I kept asking, well, what is it you're trying to do? What is it you're trying to do? And I couldn't get an answer. So mm. I don't know what anybody's up to. As far, as far as the Masons go? No, as far as the two of the Stars Academy. I do not I do not want to diss him at all in any way. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Richard. Scott? I think that was you. Yeah. Yeah, I as your as your government guy identified himself as part of any other associations besides the federal government. Um, no, not really. No, I but I haven't asked him the question. Well, remember in that enclave, you have to ask the question to get the answer. No, that's true. That's true. I think it's time to ask the question because he's offering you all kinds of help. The question is how far. Does that help extend if it extends to an expedition and funding to preserve what's there in Utah? That's the best bang for the buck I can think of at the moment because all the numbers and the art there. Hmm. Well, I can tell you after tonight, I'm sure going to run it by him. (laughs) Because you know what I do is I'll call him. I'll say, all right, pal. What's going on in Utah? I mean, is 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 Richard onto something or is he on something? Help me! <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time. I meant I meant that in, in jest. I understand? No, no, I, I I totally understand. Look, we got I about like, uh, nine like, minutes at the end of the show. I feel like good friends. What have we not covered that we need to pick up and tie the threads on before the end of the program? Well, I, I, you know, we've covered a lot of uh, a lot of territory tonight, but you know, I, I mean, all kidding aside, we can talk about all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, if if this really is a critical time, as I've been told, and I believe I, I believe that before I was told that, and that the um, the extraterrestrials are disappointed in humanity at this point. I think that's what the Israeli article was trying to point out. Um, it should be a wake-up call. Maybe, all, maybe. Look, I just received another UFO article in my news thread today, right before we went on the air. It seems to me that more and more information is coming out, not just from our government but other governments, and it's happening for a reason. And I think humanity should pay attention. Um, you know, and and I've been approached so. And I've been convinced 
the person is genuine, that the cause is legit. And it's, it's something I've been thinking about for a long time anyway. It's like all this is coming together. Um, you've been working on it, Richard. You've done a lot of work. You know a lot about this subject matter. I think we're on the same path here. And if, if there's one message we want to get out to the people listening is to help get our act together as a species. I think that's the work we need to, to move, move forward on. See, there's a whole different level of things that are occurring that are not making the news cycle because nothing is more important than the pandemic and the political distractions going on right now around the election. But if you look at the big picture in the background at the same time that we have the, the model disappearing, we have a Chinese mission to the moon, which was unannounced, dashed to the moon, landed quickly, gathered up samples and rushed home. Almost like Scott, it was trying to bring scientific data from that scoop and grab mission to be in Chinese laboratories when the next shoe drops. Yes. I think okay. you're right about that. Yeah. Well, all and I can the other thing is, is the Japanese just turned the Japanese just returned by robotic control their samples of Hayabusa. I'm sorry, um, uh, Ryugu, um, with the Hayabusa 2 spacecraft. And that's going to prove to be an ancient mechanical artifact in the solar system. All they need to do is make public the analysis. And then there's Arecibo suddenly out of nowhere collapsing, which I find very... Uh, kind of too coincidental because it means now the largest radio telescope on the planet controlled solely by the Chinese is in China. Mm. Interesting. And the Chinese have a mission en route to Mars tonight along with uh, the Arab Emirates and the U.S. in its Perseverance mission and what's really bizarre is the Chinese are planning to land in the same time frame as the U.S. mission gets there, which is February of next year. And what they chose when they announced the launch of a very sophisticated lander-rover uh, combo in their first Mars mission, they chose as a backdrop a curiosity photograph taken by NASA of a set of ancient Martian ruins on a hill behind the artistic version of the Chinese lander. And I am forecasting that this is part of a medium-term plan. Several months coincide with revealing who, our, who we really are, how deep in time our history really goes. And lo and behold, the Chinese are going to be on Mars to affirm what NASA already knows. Mm. And there is more. Haven't you noticed a kind of a, 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 a cottage industry of Arab countries suddenly sending missions to Mars and kind of palling around with the Israelis? Have you wondered what that's all about? I, w I wasn't aware of it. Well, now you are. Yeah. <laughs> Google Morocco just joined the list last week. 
Oh, isn't that special? I blew Clyde Lewis's mind weeks ago when I said this is part of disclosure. Watch, all kinds of things are going to get together that had no business ever getting together before the new paradigm was quietly launched. Mm. The dots are assembling, Scott. Your mission, should you choose to accept it. Is my computer going to burn up after you tell me the mission? <laughs> no, no, you have to sign up like, uh, what's his name? Um, you got two minutes. What do you want to say in conclusion for tonight? Well, I guess the first thing I want to say is I, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity here. And um, I think I think my contact would also um, appreciate it. Um, he's really passionate about this whole disclosure thing, and, and he wants to see it work out, and, and I do too. So I, th I appreciate this opportunity, Richard. Obviously, you're on board. You're doing your part. And, um, you know, I, I just don't think that there's a, a, a greater calling, a greater service that we can do. I mean, you know, you, you and I are, we've been down, the, we're down the road a little bit. We, we've seen more sunsets in, in the past than we're going to see. And so we have to take advantage of an opportunity when it, when it approaches and it's here. So let's, let's continue to do, do the good, good work. What you just said about the sunsets applies to a pre-disclosure world. As we move through disclosure, I would be not surprised at all at the stunning. Thank you, dear. At the stunning medical benefits that are going to accrue from opening up the system, from acknowledging our birthright, for figuring out how we can apply these sciences and arcane knowledges to the human condition starting with how to defeat this virus. Right. Well, you hear the music. I'm Scott Walter, and we've launched another Enterprise Expedition uh, tomorrow morning because I'm having some medical issues. The rerun got tonight, so everyone will be up to speed. And next week, we may actually have some progress to announce. Until then, Third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. Mm -hmm.